0: There are very few books that bring tears to my eyes. And a few years ago, I was tweeting about it. I've written an Amazon review. I was raving about it. Good cop, bad war. You may have seen Neil Woods on True Geordie podcast. You may have seen him on more recently on James English podcast. And joining the police with these honorable intentions setting out to get the bad guys and, you know, help society, just completely humanitarian motivation. And then to get into the bureaucracy, really, of the war on drugs and to see the unintended consequences of drug laws firsthand on the front line from an ex-police officer's perspective. I think it's just such a valuable viewpoint for this podcast because we've had a lot of people on who've been to prison. We've had um, a prison guard, we've had the ex-cop, John Wedger, but we've not had someone who's been on the front line undercover in the war on drugs. So thank you very much, Neil, for coming on. Uh, My first question is then, what does it take to become an
1: undercover cop? Uh, What does it take? Well, it took just... um... A, a series of events for me you know, it was a i fell into it by accident really um because I, I wasn't i was a crap cop to be honest i, I really was not a very good uniform cop uh th- first two years i struggled to struggle to stay in the job and you know they can they can sack you at any point in the first two years and i came that close so many times because i was young i was a, just a 19 year old 19 Yeah, i was 19 when i joined the police i went to university by mistake um, dropped out of that and then I was going to go backpacking around Europe but then ended up um, going to the police and I was naive because I grew up in a sort of middle-class place went to the went to the city of Derby as a cop and I just couldn't understand why people still wanted to punch me even though I was asking them nicely not to you know what town were you from originally Buxton in Derbyshire okay in the, in the peak nice town in the peak district quite sheltered really
0: and I read about there was a coin toss when you came to Making this decision to join the police.
1: Yeah, well, I couldn't make my mind up between going, trying to go around Europe or join the police. So yeah, I flipped a coin and it came up heads. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: you're on the beat. People are attacking you. Mm. Is that quite frequent then for a, a police person?
1: Well, it was. It, yeah, I mean, alcohol-based violence was quite quite high at the time. Uh, it was, but I was sheltered. I wasn't used to it. You know, I wasn't used to having to grapple drunken people. I mean, I, I, I didn't do too badly, but. Uh, I did make quite a few mistakes but then uh, 1993 I got an attachment to to the drug squad and quite a few of us young rookies did that which the drug squad hated by the way they absolutely hated it because we didn't know what we were doing uh, they didn't ask for us um, but then one of them said to me um, do you fancy having a go at buying some crack cocaine which was not a question I was expecting at all Um so uh, he gave me 20 quid, pointed me to this blue door, and I went and knocked on this door. And this uh, chap answered, and I said, can I have a 20-pound stone, please? And he said, yeah, and he, and, he, and he gave me that, and that was easy. It was so really this was easy. like a
0: street-level operation. People could just knock on the door. Any old stranger
1: could just buy crack. Is that what it was? It was fairly straightforward, yeah. The, it, it was. But that day then defined the next 14 years of my life. 14 years. Yeah, because you see, in 1993... You're not. Are you not old enough? You, you, you're a bit younger than me, aren't you? You How old? How old do I look? Are you in your (laughs) forties? Early forties. Wow, you're older than me. Wow, you've aged better than I have. Drugs, drugs preserve me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, in 1993, you will remember then. There was the greatest moral panic about drugs in the UK. Were you in the UK? No, I
0: left for America in 91. I was working the stock market during (laughs) those years.
1: Right, well, you'll know the story from the other side because in the UK for years, the tabloid newspapers had whipped everyone up into a panic about crack cocaine. So every Sunday, the Sunday Mail would publish a story that black crack dealers were corrupting white people in America. That was basically the story all the time. And this is years before we had any crack. So the moment with the crack hit the streets everyone's in this like frenzy oh my god this this killer drugs arrived you know end of society so the home office responded to that and invested massively in drugs policing and instructed all of the chief constables to make drugs in particular heroin and crack their number one priority and that it went above rape above child abuse anything drugs went to the number one so the drug squad was under pressure to get results to get arrests, to get seizures, and prove they were doing the job, and suddenly I've knocked on a door and I've walked away with some crack, just like that. So that was a new tactic, really, which um, which was invested in quite quickly. Um, but of course, first day it was quite easy. You know, the, the chap was a nice bloke, really. I mean, he had a previous for GBH, fair enough, but he was very polite to me. He said, "You take care, don't get yourself arrested," which I thought, which I thought was polite. Um, but the trouble is, he then went to jail. And he mixed with other people. And, you know, people pass on information very quickly, don't they? You learn very quickly what's going on uh, from people coming into the jail. So everybody across the UK suddenly knew there was a new tactic in town. And uh, so that nice, polite exchange at that front door was no longer nice and polite. Not just for the police, like undercover cops like me, but for everyone else as well.
0: When these guys get busted then and they get their legal discovery does your identity then get revealed to them so they know that person who bought that crack off me was an undercover police man uh
1: eventually at the conclusion of an operation yeah so in in that case i think there was him and just a, and a few other people involved as soon as the, the operation's finished you know it's decided that it's concluded then yes they would be interviewed and it would be explained to them that you have um you have sold to an undercover cop because different to political undercover Work, that's the, the great scandal of um, the environmentalists being infiltrated by cops and that kind of thing. Very different to that. My job was always intended to end up in court. My role was always to gather evidence. So that was the end game of it, yeah. So once that is
0: revealed, is your usefulness as an undercover cop in that area ruined because word spreads fast in the criminal community?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, although I was treated quite recklessly at at times, particularly in the early days, um, you know, my youth, my usefulness was considered uh, worth the risk. Um, And um, so I was overused in Derby and actually had to, I started a a heroin job in Derby when I'd worked in the town, in the town before, but they thought, well, you know, everyone's in prison. There's no problem. And I saw someone I'd, I'd, I'd met on an undercover op before coming towards me. I had to, to jump into a garden and hide behind a woman packing some washing out um yeah so there were risks
0: well in the book good cop bad war and the description box below this video the links for both of neil's books the second book is drug wars there are links in the description box below this video you can buy the book worldwide on amazon paperback um kindle audiobook book. And also I'll put links down there for the True Geordie and the James English podcast as well, if you want to watch Neil and those podcasts as well. And links for Leap, which we're going to get to, the organisation. So I'll read in the book then, as you're rising the ranks undercover, there are some violent gangs that you're assigned to infiltrate. Can we do those stories individually in detail?
1: Yes, certainly, if you like. Okay. I wasn't. I didn't rise through the ranks, though. I was always a lowly constable, um, but um, I, I did develop in the world of undercover work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's let's start out then with one of those stories, one of those gangs. What was the first one that was a heavy gang that you infiltrated? And
1: first one that was a heavy gang. Well, I mean, I suppose um, there was a a gang, small gang in uh, Stoke on Trent in Fenton um where i'd been buying um well, I'd, I'd worked up to buy buying weights of heroin so i'd gone from 10 bags to sort of different weights and buying henry's and maybe sometimes quarters as well of heroin off this guy so i was quite happy with him that um that he trusted me and um but I remember knocking on this door one of the four addresses that he that he was using and uh, he he opened the door the next thing i know he's got a samurai sword against my throat and I thought well this isn't very good uh, well that's probably not the words that came to my mind to be honest um but it was it, it was genuinely terrifying I could feel that cold steel in my throat and you know that I had that moment where I thought well this is it because he was he was always a bit scary he was a bit aggressive but he was screaming at me you're you're ds you're fucking ds I know you are and and I, I said oh I can't even remember what I said. I said, um, don't mean to hassle you or something inane like that. And uh, and then I heard this female voice say, I thought he was going to say he was then. And this this, this woman sort of stuck her head out from behind him and, and just started laughing. And then they both started laughing. <laughs> Jesus. He was, was, was just winding me up or it was a test or it was a show of strength, whatever it was. Or maybe he just had a new sword. He wanted to try it out. I don't know. You know, you got a, you got a new toy um but yeah they were just then they were just pissing themselves laughing yeah and then and then i says uh yeah can i can i have uh in fact i, th- I to remember that i said can i have half a tea i was asking for half a tea which means what half a half a tea is um a teenth is 3.75 grams so half a tea is half of that um so 1.7 something um and he, and he just started shouting at me again there. No, I haven't got anywhere near that kind of weight. It's a bit strange because he'd been selling me larger weights. And I said, well, can I have four ten bags then? And he's looking at me really intently like he was going to hit me. He went, yeah, all right then. And gave me four 10 bags. It it was a peculiar experience. Really.
0: Was he on drugs?
1: He was very into his crack cocaine. Um, in fact, yeah, he was. he was a heroin user, that one. A lot of the... In fact, almost all of the vicious people didn't tend to be users at all. they tended to to be the the more serious gangsters who who whose violence is really from part of the business model uh but he was yeah he was just um he was a troubled soul
0: so going into that situation with him then did they give you like a profile piece all of his criminal history and what he's capable of and the dangers involved in this assignment or anything like that
1: at that stage and actually actually no um because There was very much um, debate at that time in terms of undercover work whether my view of somebody I was going to come into contact with should be tainted by what I know about them and that there is a risk in terms of how I behave and the perception of how I behave that would be changed by that knowledge. Uh, And the the, the sort of, the school of thought for undercover work was actually being debated amongst the few of us that did it at that time. And we were just, because we were, that was before there was any training. I had not had any training by that point. Uh, So we were just, I was just making it up as I went along. And at at that time, no, I wasn't told his previous convictions. Later on in operations, sometimes um, that I was told the full previous convictions and backgrounds of people.
0: So the sword guy then, what was the name you used for him in your book? Can you remember?
1: I can't remember the names I give people.
0: Didn't he come in, in and out of the book a little bit?
1: No, I don't think so. He now he was contained to Fenton, I think. Okay. Very and much a Stoke local. <laughs> what was
0: the what was the bust then that went down with him?
1: Um, the bust with him.
0: How did he end up getting arrested eventually?
1: Uh, I think I think there was a rapid entry for all the, all the houses for, that he was in, involved in. in. Incidentally, that day when I had the samurai sword to my throat, yeah. I came away with my four bags. Yeah. And I had a cigarette packet, and I, was, I put them in my cigarette packet. And then as I close my cigarette packet, then there's a knife pressing towards my stomach with this black handle and this sharp like, kitchen knife. And I look up, and this guy says, um, and he's clearly trying to rob me for the heroin I've just bought. <sighs> Which you know' it's, it's not uncommon because you get you do a robbery near a dealer's house, and what you're going to do report it to the police, so in <laughs> if you want if you're going to do some street robberies, doing it near a dealer's house isn't actually such a bad plan, so it's a risk of of, of the world. Uh, but I remember looking at the knife and looking at him, thinking, "No, I've just gone through too much for this. There's just no way I'm hanging, handing this over, so I just started trotting backwards, um, and he actually said to me, "No hang on, come here a minute." I thought. No. <laughs> no. I won't come here in <laughs> a minute. So you can stick a knife in my belly. No, thank you. But um you know, I I did actually look very much like a problematic heroin user at that time, but thankfully I can run faster than one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: had you had weapons pulled on you before this situation?
1: Actually no. That was I, I think that was the first time I'd had a weapon drawn on me, actually. Yeah.
0: And the moment you've got a samurai sword to your Adam's
1: apple, does that make you rethink your career choice? I'll be honest with you. At that time, when I was running away from the guy saying, no, just stop, come here a minute, um, I was buzzing, to be honest. I really was at that time. Um, I was. It was a huge adrenaline surge. I was quite full of myself that I'd got through it and got away with it. And uh, now that was one of the occasions where... No, it didn't put me off at all, to be honest. Because a
0: lot of the guys who come in here, a lot of them have been in prison for some serious offences or some drug offences. And I ask them about their trajectory of crime. And you can see that they're addicted to playing cops and robbers. But it's interesting to hear your perspective that as a young man, you've got that same adrenaline buzz just from Mm. the other side of the coin. Yeah, yeah. So how are drug gangs... Let's let's go back actually to the the time of of Good Cop Bad War when you're 14 years when you're starting out. How were the drug gangs structured in this country?
1: Well, that I mean that has been an interesting change over time, and it's been quite a rapid change over time. When um, when I started, there weren't really drug gangs, not not really. It, it was um, loose affiliations of people who just want to do business and trade. And, and to a certain extent, that's the same now, actually. The idea of a gang is actually exaggerated by police and media quite a lot. When you look at Liverpool, for example, people talk about Liverpool gangs. Actually, Liverpool's just a collection of people who know each other and they'll shift and work with different people, you know. It might be organised because there's a structure and an exchange of money and goods, but it's a loose organisation. Now, some of the jobs I've done have been street gangs, Uh, like Birmingham street gangs where they have a very much an affiliation to a street a postcode that kind of thing but generally it's about it's about business unless you look at the more aggressive lower end of it but I think the important thing is how it's changed over time and why so as a result of police action people band together and support each other and become a gang and the reason for that is that the most successful dealers on the street and in the city area become the ones who are the most willing to be most violent because they're the ones who don't get grassed up. So if you've got a reputation for violence and intimidation and uh, you know, possibly the most important dynamic between any, any people in, in, this, in, in, in this, this drug war is when someone's arrested as a dealer and they're sat in that cell. And they know the cops are going to come in that cell and ask for information. And that person's there is thinking, I've got a conviction already. I'm looking at five years. I can't do five years. My kid's going to be too old when I come out. But I know if I can grass someone up, I can get it down to two and a half. And that's the great dynamic between the drug dealing world and police. But the important thing is that person sat in that cell thinking, who am I least scared of? Who am I least scared of that I feel like I can grass up? And that dynamic and that thought process is actually what's driving the violence because all the gangsters out there know that. And so they strive to be the most aggressive so that they're not the ones grassed up in that situation. So by policing drugs and using police informants, it drives the violence in a sort of Darwinian kind of way.
0: And you're hearing that from an ex-undercover cop, the unintended consequences of the drug war the drug laws have made the drug problem bigger than what it really is i've been saying this for years but you know people say hey well he, you know he's a trafficker he would say these things but now you know neil's come in and said that from his own experience what was the second time a weapon got pulled on you
1: Forgive me for being vague and having to think about the order of things, but it, it gets so I, I suffer from PTSD, so sometimes okay. it, it can be uh, remembering the order of things can be a little bit confusing. I' am having a really yeah. good day today though so you've caught, you, caught, <laughs> you caught me on a good day I, I, I have to confess when I did the james English <laughs> when i was I, I'd, I'd been having some real PTSD, oh, P, PTSD issues, but yeah I don't know if, I, if it comes across on the tape because I don't watch myself right all, but, but um so the order of things. So we don't have to get an, a, a,
0: an exact chronological order, and what I'm looking for here is the most noteworthy times you got in dangerous situations, so we can expand on those stories.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose. Um, well, Leicester, I suppose uh, Leicester was one of the one of the probably the most dangerous one because the police that the the cops that were running the operation, the team was professional but the DI running the team wasn't, and he was uh, in competition with the DI running, running another operation. And um, that that put me at some, at some risk, their rivalry. And what it meant, because there was two operations going on in the region at the same time, which was unusual and unwise. But one DI decided to uh, end his operation and do all the busts, ignoring the fact that I was saying... Look, all of this organized crime in the region's interconnected. You kick some doors in and it's going to send ripples everywhere and it's going to put me at risk. But they did it anyway, which is extraordinary cavalier attitude with my safety, really. It's the end of an operation and, and the, the most interesting gangster I'd been buying heroin off, who he was very well connected. I can't remember what to call him in the book. Um... I'd not I'd not seen him for a while because he he wasn't being hands on and he was he was behind the scenes. So but I hadn't got any um, video footage of him because when I'd been buying heroin off him it was early in the operation and you don't you don't wear a, a wire or you don't wear a video early on until you know you can you can be trusted. So I thought well I need to get the footage and there was pressure on me from above to get the video footage of this guy. So I um so I tempted him out by phoning him up because I knew he was really into clothes. So I got some fake Stone Island jackets from customs that they'd seized. They were great. You can you could phone up customs and say, have you got any uh, hooky tobacco or fake clothes or anything <laughs> I can have? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, so I had these Stone Island jackets and um, he was keen to meet me. And we met in this car park near the Inner Ring Road in, in Leicester. But the trouble is he bought two of his mates with him and these ripples had obviously gone around and there was suspicion about, and they didn't know me. Now the guy I knew, I'd known him for six months and um, so he was fine, but these two were just looking at me and one was saying, ah, so how long you you knowing him then? How long? I said, I've known him for months, man. There's no problem. Anyway, then sudden then the guy I knew said, well, you just want to sell these clothes or are you after something else? And what I'm thinking as an undercover cop is I've only ever bought heroin off you. If I can buy crack off you, that's an extra 12 months in prison because it's a, the two commodities. And that's just the way you start thinking. So I'm thinking, well, if you're in white, I'll have some white. So um, he gets out this enormous block of crack, like just massive, like bigger than a VHS thing, for, that he's just carrying around in the car. Anyway, sits in the driver's seat of the car and starts cutting me a little slither off for a £20 stone. But as he's doing that, his mate just suddenly pushes me up against this wall and says and starts fiddling with my clothes. And it, I'm not wearing James bontek This this isn't high end stuff. This is too you know, the year I think the year's two thousand and one or something. And he finds the lump behind the <gasps> behind the uh behind my button, and the button is like a, um, a denim jacket metal button with a little hole drilled in. So once you found it and looking at it and there's a little glint of a a lens there, you're not really in any doubt what you've just found, you know, especially if you happen to be looking for it. And he was just like, my God, he is as well. Man, he's heat. And so I'm thinking now, this is an isolated car park. There's literally no one around. And there's three gangsters here, one of which I know by by reputation is a maniac. And uh, Before you proceed, could you
0: tell us what you know about him that made you conclude he was a maniac?
1: Well, he was well connected, part of what was considered considered a gang, regional gang. Is uh, there a name
0: for that gang? No,
1: there was. They, they, they people don't necessarily go by a moniker, but they were just they were just connected to Birmingham. I know he was connected to Birmingham, had um, Leicester, Nottingham, part of a a, a clique, and. Um, and I, and I knew that he was he was violent. It was very polite to me, but I knew what his potential was. So this guy, he was way taller than me as well. And I knew at that moment that I was in really serious trouble, really serious trouble. And the, and the most likely outcome of this would be me being seriously hurt or, or murdered because they wouldn't want that evidence against them. So now I have... You ask what it takes to be an undercover cop. Now, there are there there's some things that helps, and one thing one um, thing that I have that it, well, I used to have <laughs> that that used to be a, of great help was that if I'm in an adrenaline situation, I get a big adrenaline spike, and I'm in danger. Time seems to slow down for me, or it used to, so that I've had the feeling that um, I have all the time in the world to think, a real sort of calm clarity which is a little bit at odds with the situation you would imagine. So I just I just knew that I had to carefully think this through to get out and my thoughts were I just ha- basically have to prevent him from telling him what he's found in order for me to escape during that period of doubt. And I have to do it in a very surprising way to set him up, to, to you know to confuse him. So I basically just launched into it. Now bearing in mind I'm not an aggressive or sweary person generally, but I had to go at him in a threatening and abusive way. So I says, what the fuck are you doing picking up my clothes? It's not even my fucking jacket. I got this off Jackie this morning. So what the fuck are you on about? What are you picking up my clothes for? And repeat. And I just, I gave him a constant stream. So it didn't give him any space to tell his mate what he'd found. And he looked like shocked. Like, "Wow, well, I wasn't expecting that reaction. And he had a hold of one of the jackets. So I took that slowly, folded it up really slowly Really slowly, you know, because if you if you're being stalked by wolves, if you run away from them, they'll soon chase you down. If you face them, face up to them, that you know, you, you you cause some doubt. So I just did it really slowly and put it in the plastic bag I got it in, and then I started walking away. And as I'm doing, I'm just giving constant abuse. What the fuck are you doing? The fuck are you doing anyway? And just just like that, and just slowly walking. This big car park, and I'm still shouting. And I hear him shouting to his mate saying, man, he's fucking 5-0. He's heat. I'm telling you, he's fucking 5-0. I remember thinking, you're not old enough to have seen a Y5-0. But that's but still use the slang 5-0. But anyway, so, he, but, so I got about halfway and then I hear this running behind me. I think, okay, I'm about halfway. If, I, if it's just one of them, if I swing round, get, try and get a punch in and then leg it. I might just get to the exit of the car park. So I turn around ready, but it's the one I know. And he says, oh, don't mind my mate, he's a dickhead. I says, yeah, he is a dickhead, picking up my clothes and it's not even my jacket, the twat. And he says, don't you want your ting? I'm thinking, you really wanna sell me crack now after that? So I said, uh, yeah. So I gave him the 20 quid and all the exchanges in the middle of the camera, um, his sort of smiling face on the other side. And I put it in my pocket, and his mate is absolutely screaming at him. For fuck's sake, he's heat. So he starts walking back, and then I carry on. And then, of course, he does manage to persuade him that he has actually found what he's just found um, quite forcefully. So then I hear the engine revving Mm. and squeal of tires. I think perhaps I shouldn't be dawdling now. And and I sprinted. So, But I got to the edge of the car park. Now, I can just describe this. The car park went out into the sort of inner ring road bit. And then it, it led up to a roundabout. And you know where how a dual carriageway in a city roundabout has metal railings to protect the pavement in a curve? I sprinted along the pavement, but the car was coming along the pavement after me. So I just got to the metal railing where there was no room for the car. And there must have been just two metres spare wow. when I when I glanced behind. So then they bumped onto the roundabout, a couple of cars squealing that they stopped, and, uh, and then they went round the roundabout slowly and they came round again. But by that time, the way the geography was there, I was able to get to the away from them very quickly because I could get to a pedestrian area just beyond, I think it's just beyond a KFC or whatever. So I was away then. Um, so I carried on walking. And then, so I got back to the, what we call the safe location, the briefing spot and debrief spot. Got to the safe location and uh, described what had happened, told him the number of the car, the description of the people. And the intel guy went away, did all his research. A few minutes later, he came back in the room laughing. He says, wow, I don't know why they just didn't shoot you. He says, there's loads of intel that there's a gun in that car. So we laughed about that, but that's sort of, Cop humor, really.
0: So, can you no longer? You're off that case now. Oh, that was it, the end of that
1: job. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was right at the end of it anyway. Okay, but um, but yeah, that was pulled. And it, it, but it's that I shouldn't have been deployed that day. Really. So
0: did those guys get raided and successfully prosecuted on your
1: evidence? Uh, only the dealer that I knew, not the other two, not the one who made who found the camera.
0: Did you? have To go on the cover against anyone you knew had committed a murder or a gang that was involved in murder,
1: yeah. Um, the uh, lot, yeah, um, others really. I mean, I suppose the next one, there's both the next one and the Burger Bar Boys, but the next one was um, in Nottinghamshire, the, the Bestwood Cartel. Bestwood Cartel, yes, um, run by Colin Grunt, Colin Gunn and his brother, um. I've been advised not to mention his brother. Um, so Colin Gunn. Um, and um, that operation was interesting because what was going on in Nottingham at the time was there were daily shootings. It was um, an extraordinary time in the city, actually, because Colin Gunn and his, his group basically went to war with everybody else. They were at war with everyone. They were they were dominating the supply and just and just trying to get rid of the competition. Classic drug war, turf war, really, uh, but driven by the ego of of Colin Gunn. And it was so bad that um the newspapers were had it on front the front pages all the time. Uh I mean I think my favourite headline at the time was Shottingham. But then I'm quite into puns. It's quite a good pun, don't you think? (laughs) Um, And it was even discussed that the failure of Nottinghamshire Constabulary to tackle it would mean that the Home Office would take over direct control of Nottinghamshire Constabulary. That's how how bad it was. And uh, all the cops were on overtime. There was literally shooting every day happening. Every day? Every day. Every day. Just about every day, yeah. It It was extraordinary. Shootings not necessarily have people... Uh, dying or being maimed every day, but there were gunshots every day. So it was really tense. And that was the reason I was sent into that area, really, because there was it was needed to try and do something to to infiltrate and find some intelligence. Now, my target wasn't necessarily Colin Gunn directly. That was a little bit above my uh, low-level style of undercover work. But there was lots of pressure on me to get intelligence about what was going on. So... I, I mean, I think the job just took over six months. I I um, spent a long time getting to know people. Where now, do you start? Well, when you're working undercover, you need people to manipulate, and the easiest people to manipulate are vulnerable people. It, it, it's a it's a brutal truth of of undercover work, absolutely. But also, vulnerable people they tend to have the most connections because they're using more drugs than other people. So I picked on this one guy, Cammy. I picked on a few, but this particular guy was perfect for my purposes because he was a user dealer, so problematic heroin user, dealing bits as a runner, um, and he was on bail for dealing. But he was part of – he was the lower end of that organisation, guns organisation. That's where his drugs were coming from. So he was perfect. And I spent ages wooing him, really you know just befriending him um and what i've called what i tend to call it nowadays when i look back is is that i was weaponizing empathy because i was and all the time i was trying to learn about the people i was around and and that's that's how to be successful to learn about the people but
0: you know So, so when you say wooing him you just walk up to him and approach him and say something yeah, I how just do you get... initiate that?
1: Well, I mean, I was presenting myself as a heroin consumer.
0: So you ask, "Where can I buy some smack?"
1: That's, that's always your opening line, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's got to be because uh, it's it's the normal conversation. It's quite normal to talk about heroin if you are really keen on heroin. Um, so I'd say, "Look, you know, I'm 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 looking to looking for bees. Are you Are you looking for bees?" And you look I look at his eyes and say, "Yeah, you're ready, aren't you?" Because when you're rattling or you come down of heroin, your pupils are big. If you've just had something tiny, so it makes for an easy conversation like, oh, are you ready to score? You're looking to score. Uh, you know, I've only got five of you want to share a bag, do you want to split one? And suddenly you, you, you're in the same kind of realm and you can start talking about it. So they're checking
0: your pupils out then? Yeah, yeah. And if you've not taken the drugs, how are you adapting that with your pupils?
1: Well, I bet my pupils look big now, despite that light. because okay. Because. Um, <laughs> Adrenaline, or PTSD, or various things will make your pupils go bigger than yeah. normal. Or LSD will, you know. But but heroin wow. does the op- Heroin does the opposite. It makes it go small. I've seen that, yeah, in prison. Yeah. yeah. So I so I um, so f- for the most part, I probably constantly looked like I was rattling. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> it might have been a, might have been one of my advantages. I don't know. But but um, but it's easy to make that kind of conversation as long as you know how to talk that way, and you learn to talk that way with empathy, and you learn from the people around you. So I got to know him quite well, and and he was a really nice guy, Cami. Really, really nice. Um, like like most problematic heroin users are, to be honest. He um, he was clearly dealing with some kind of childhood trauma, uh, like like almost all heroin problematic heroin users are. In fact, academic evidence says that two thirds of problematic heroin users are self medicating for. Some kind of childhood trauma, either physical, sexual abuse or neglect. So he was clearly in that in that field. Um, and I spent I spent time with him. We went shoplifting together, actually, which um, which is really good fun. Shoplifting, it, <laughs> it, it really is though, especially if you're in if there's two of you and you can take it in turns to be lookout. <laughs> and I, I remember actually one one of the things I I, I got away with was. Um, which was always a great challenge is, you know, in the th- the real commodity to, st- to steal then, electronic commodity, was um, PlayStation memory cards. Now, people nowadays might not even remember what they are, know what they are, but they're basically a memory card which would give you extra memory for a PlayStation. And they'd be a real tradable commodity. But you went in Dixon's or Curry's, I think it was Curry's where it was, they always had a little magnetic sticker on. So you'd have to get, Distract the staff or take them somewhere else in the stall to peel the sticker off. And sometimes they're really difficult, <laughs> especially if you bite your nails like I do. So they're really difficult to peel off. But that was good fun because you know there was a bit more effort involved. And in fact, like once I peeled the magnetic sticker off and stuck it to a woman's back, <laughs> 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 which I know was a little bit mischievous of me, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I just got taken with the moment. But on but- that
0: on that subject, if you're an undercover cop and you steal something. At the end of the day, do you have to give it back?
1: Well, yes. Yes. Well, yes, eventually, eventually, yeah, because theft, the definition of theft is um, to appropriate something with the the intention of permanently depriving that person of it. My intention legally was never to permanently deprive them of it because my intention would always be eventually that evidence from the evidence would eventually go back to the store plus any compensation if necessary for the fact that we had it so long. So... It's all about the intent, so I could do it legally. Not so the poor people that I was with who, if they got caught, they were shafted, essentially.
0: So you've made an association with this guy at street level, and how do you expand it out from that?
1: Well, um, my intent was always to get him to to introduce me to other people. So the conversations I would have with him were... um, yeah, the the brown we were buying off off um, hoops or the, or, or DAS or whoever, it's not bad, but I really fancy a better connect because if you've got someone who is dealing to the regional or, or local handful of street dealers, they're a step up, and the street dealers are going to skim it slightly. They'll make like, um, you know, they'll they'll make they'll make it go further. So a ten wrap slightly smaller, so. There's value in there's wherever you are in the in the market. There's value in being further up the the ladder, isn't it? You know, you get better quality, better deals. So that's that's the way I would start talking. You know, oh, I could do with a better connect. You know, what about this guy? You tell me about this guy. Uh, is, you know, would he be safe? Would it be all right to get introduced to? And that's how I'd get all my information about. Oh, he'd tell me the whole story about this guy. What happened to him? And actually, this guy, Stitz, as I call him in the book, who I was, was the, the guy I wanted to get introduced to because he was close to Gunn. Amber um, Cammy telling me, oh, you never guess what happened to Stitz yesterday because he actually really likes knifing people. And that's the, re- that's the reputation he had. You know, he's really into slashing people with his knife. You know, Everyone has to have Albie, but that was his. And um, But this got to be so problematic that apparently Colin Gunn, Snatched him off the street. This is one of his own dealers, dealers, lieutenant. Snatched him off the street, took him to the middle of a field out of the city, made him strip, strip naked, stuck a shotgun in his mouth, pulled the triggers back and said, you need to stop being so handy with that blade. And he's like, uh, okay and um, and that was the threat for drawing too much attention to himself with. This is the man who's at war with everyone and shooting people, but apparently that was the tightener he gave him.
0: Oh. We have a quick question then before we get to gone. You've made friends now with this low level person and you've gone out shoplifting and you've scored your dope. Doesn't that person then want to see you take those drugs in front of them
1: well i there's always a, that's always a challenge to to not be doing that. Because I never had to do heroin, never used it. That would scare the hell out of me, if I'm honest. Um, and I, but I, I would say that, you know, I would talk about my habit being quite small. Um, I would just do, be doing it mostly like in the evening. Uh, I would take tolerance breaks off, you know, and people do do that. It's quite reasonable. Because believe it or not, only 25% of heroin use is problematic. You know, we have this image of, Anyone who uses heroin is an addict. That's the, that's what the media puts out. That's what everyone understands it. You know, the, the sort of one one smoke and you're addicted for life idea. It's loads of bollocks, really. It's people who have a problem with emotional difficulties that have that problem. I mean, most, 90% of drug use is, is non-problematic. It's just that problematic heroin use is much higher than other drugs, but it's still only 25%. So I could talk in terms of... Um, Yeah, I'm taking a tolerance break, mate. You know, I've been I've been caning it a bit, or I'm only going to do it in the evening, or um, so that I could do that. But there were times through my career when people were suspicious. Someone once insisted in Brighton that he give me a blowback because I said, "Well, I'm I'm doing my latest." No, you're having a blowback. So, what is a blowback? So, blowback is when someone um, generally canes a whole wrap, whole ten wrap in one smoke, one uh, toot on the foil. And then blows it into someone else, and they have it from them. Um, so I went into this this toilet, and he said, "I said, yeah, yeah, all right. yeah, no worries." Um, inwardly terrified, but I said, "Yeah, whatever, good idea." Um, and he and he blew it, and I sort of looked like I was inhaling, and I did the Bill Clinton. I just didn't inhale, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, please don't notice all this smoke going out the side of my mouth because I'm not inhaling it. Um. And he didn't. He was quite satisfied. So that got me out of a bit of a sticky hole, really.
0: Well, that's a striking difference between what I was used to because I was in rave culture, I wasn't in heroin culture. But rave culture, after parties, you know, everyone's passing around the plate of ketamine or they're all in ecstasy massaging each other. There's the rituals and the use that are part of that. It's like inherent. Mm. But you're saying that in heroin and crack culture, you could just get away with saying you know i just go in the toilet at nights and do my bit but right now i'm i'm abstaining blah 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 you could get away with that in that culture
1: yeah well you have to remember people who have a problem a real problem with heroin and crack they are the most marginalized people in in our society generally and they have to live on the streets because that's that's where they where they exist so that actually makes it sort of easier to get away with not using drugs because you know dealers don't want to be hanging around in one place to be spotted if a dealer's suspicious, then you can fob them off one way or another, because they're not gonna they really are not keen on hanging around watching you uh toot to some heroin. I did have I did have one, I don't think this got into the book actually, because it's one of the things that I recall later, but there was a there was a time uh on, on the Nottinghamshire job where um someone was I, I got the hint that somebody was suspicious. And you know sometimes it's the slightest hint. The guy that was with me who'd introduced me to the dealer was sat in the in a car because I was driving a car at this point in this job. He was sat on my left. And the dealer had got in the back seat to deal and passed it between the seats. Now, I knew there was great risk if the suspicion festered. So what I did is I cooked up because I'd I I watched it happen plenty of times and I and I knew how to do it and I practiced it. So what is I, the
0: procedure to cook up?
1: So I had my spoon. I'd got a little bottle of water, uh, sterile water, put it in the in the spoon, tiny bit of citric and um, put I put a third of the wrap in wrapped that up carefully, uh, got my clipper lighter cooked it up, made it bubble so it boiled uh, dropped the filter in I had my uh, long orange um, syringe draw it up through the filter uh, tapped it, let it cool down to body temperature, Cool down for a bit chatting to them while I was waiting for it to cool down then I put my trousers down as if to go into my groin because if you're a regular injector and you go into your groin, that's the one spot in the body that doesn't heal up. It just stays open all the time. So you, you have a lot of people where a lot of people have had collapsed veins on their arms. They go into the groin because it never, it never really heals up. Or some people go into the groin right from the offset because they don't want the collapsed veins on their arms. So I went to go in my, in my groin and then injected into the car seat wow um so but that was that was very useful for me to do that at the time because i didn't want that suspicion developing there was a few little awkward comments like asking me twice in the same day where are you from again that's not healthy you've got to try and nip that in the bud somehow
0: when i first entered the house of the new Mexico mafia in arizona these guys were serious guys like ak-47s and all these guns slabs of meth slabs of cocaine and one of the brothers had brought me over who i was cool with but they saw me this you know this, this this pale english man just walking into this house and they're all like mm, just like they wanted to kill me or eat me at least hmm. so this massive one all, all the prison tats on and the just swings a spoonful of coke in my face it's like snot that And I look at the the brother who's brought me off a G-Dog. He's like, yeah, snort that. So I just snorted it up. And um, that was it, because they want to do this test to see if you're taking the drugs, isn't it? Mm. If I hadn't snorted it, I probably would have been taken out to the desert.
1: Well, I mean, that that sort of happened to me, sort of, Um, with... um... It was a, a more of a, a ravey environment, I suppose. It wasn't an actually heroin and crack job specifically. Although the dealer I was after was dealing crack and heroin. He was also an antique burglar, a car thief, big big player. And it was in a it was the weirdest location, though this uh, village pub in Whittick in Leicestershire, but it just happened to be the meeting place of all the region's gangsters. It was it was the most peculiar thing. You know, <laughs> I couldn't quite believe it when the intelligence explained to me. I thought you're having a laugh, aren't you? It's ridiculous. It's like some kind of cartoon or something.
0: Like John Gotti's social club. They're all right
1: there. Yeah, it was It was bizarre. It really was. Anyway, the, this this big, big fish there, he'd, I'd been befriending him. But I made a really, really stupid mistake, really stupid mistake with that operation. I made myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines. It's just, just something to talk about, you know, because I knew the different types and the reasons why things would be different, you know. methamphetamine and benzadrine and etc and um anyway he fell for it because one day after i'd known for a few weeks he says hey you got you a present and he held out this bag and it had this pink toxic looking goo in it and it looked like you could see the bag plastic bag even dissolving in front of your eyes you know it smelled like the Urine from a glue sniffing cat, <laughs> really brutal urine type sort of nasty chemical smell. Um, and I must have had just a moment's reticence, very fleeting passing look on my face. And at the moment that that happened, I saw he'd seen that, mm-hmm. and I could pick up on that instant. And I knew because he was a very violent character, I'd seen him order someone uh, a beating for someone for 10 pound debt, and I thought. I've got to dive in here. I've got to show some enthusiasm now to, to to offset what he's just seen. So I said, "Yeah, okay." And I dipped my finger in, put my little finger in a little bit, and put on my tongue. And he looked at me and said, "You're going to want more than that with your tolerance." Thinking right, okay. So I dipped in and put a load more in. And I sort of felt the mouth also forming instantly, you know. Um, and 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 when it when it hit my stomach, yeah, it was it was. Quite an intense rush, just to be honest. Um, and I got out of there, tried to write some evidence up, and uh, but I had to I had to be driven home. It was an it was a horrible experience, to be honest. It was really anxiety inducing. Um, the average purity of speed at the time was five percent. This was forty percent, so it was proper it was proper base. Um, but I knew enough about the drug that I wasn't going to overdose. I just. Probably going to have an unpleasant time. Um, and I knew, when I was being driven home, I was thinking, I've got eight cans of Stella in the fridge at home. And I'm thinking, that's going to calm me down. And it didn't touch the sides at all. It made no difference whatsoever, which is quite surprising. Yeah, I, was, I didn't sleep properly for three nights. Oh, Jesus. But my house has never been so tidy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how is the gun case building up then from the street level
1: well eventually i got in i got an introduction from kami to um stitz and um i went i met, I met up with Stitts, he drove to meet me cammy wasn't there i was on my own the intros were by by phone so i got there and um he's in he's in this car and in the front passenger seat is his son who i find out is his son who's 12, I believe, 12, 13. And he's wearing an identical tracksuit to his father. Absolutely identical. They've both got shaved heads. Um, And it was just so odd. I'm thinking he's brought like a mini-me with him. (laughs) So, so weird. So anyway, he started interrogating me and saying, who who, do do you know? How, how How do you know to speak to me? I says, well, you've just spoke to them on the phone they've just explained to you and oh right and who else do you know and it just got to the really bland kind of thing but then he opened the door and he put a a blade into my bollocks and i could feel the steel and it's and i don't recommend it at all it's it's a most uncomfortable feeling quite off-putting um so he asked me the same questions again and gave me a real grilling and it felt like it went on for a Hell of a long time, but probably probably went on as long as ten minutes or so. With or the blade minutes. against your bollocks yeah. the whole time. Yeah, yeah, <sighs> yeah. But I remember thinking, looking at the kid, like this child is seeing this. This child is is this is this child's development. You know, this is what he's seen his dad doing. as he brought his child with him specially to show him mm-hmm. that this is how you behave? You know, um, yeah. It really, really stuck with me that. Um, but eventually, uh, he was happy with me and. Um, and I bought off him and then, uh, that was quite a breakthrough really. Cause he was one of the most, he was someone we really needed to get. Um, but he was never, he, he was never relaxed with me really. It was always, every time I met him, it was, um, nerve inducing. Um, and, and by this time, the thrill of adrenaline surges was starting to wear off. <laughs> if, if you get my meaning, that was, that was tiring. You know, that was um, I was exhausted after that, really exhausted and very on edge. And that was four and a half months into that job at that point, four and a half months I'd got to get that introduction. Next day, I went into, um, it, we had the morning briefing and we'd been working with no, with no days off for a long time and two of the backup team went off sick. So I got two new replacement cops. First one when I met him, no problem at all, shook his hand. Second one, shook his hand and, and just the hairs bent up on the back of my neck. And you know when you've been when you've been working undercover and you've um, you become very sensitive to body language and and you know you're feeling almost paranoid really. And this guy just screamed wrong, you know. It was such a reaction I had perhaps the way that he looked sideways into the floor instead of meeting my eyes when he shook hands. I don't know what exactly, but instincts screamed. So I said to the boss, like, I can't have this guy knowing what I'm doing. I can't, I'm not comfortable with him. So I said, well, we'll exclude them both so they don't ask any questions and just tell them to park up at the edge of the city. So I didn't think much more of that after that. So just after six months uh, the job concluded, loads of people arrested, um, some gangster types like Stitts, lots of vulnerable people as well. Were you ever introduced to Gun before the arrests? No, I've never met him. It, he wasn't actually arrested as a result of the conclusion of my job, actually. Uh, my job provided intelligence for another operation, a uh, very good operation by Nottinghamshire Constabulary, which brought him down a few months later. So one thing led to another. So I never got to that level with that with that job. But when he was brought down, less than a year later, Gunn, it turned out that the cop that I was uh, suspicious of, had that reaction to, um, was an employee of Colin Gunn. He'd been paid by Gunn to join the police uh, with the instruction of working his way into CID. And he was paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages plus bonuses for good information. Now in the debrief for that operation, when I spoke to some senior covert police, the attitude from from the senior police was, Well, Woodsy, we know this happens. Of course this happens. With this much money involved, how can it not happen? So and I've spoke to many senior police since, including some chief constables uh, that I've got to know, and they all agree that this is inevitable, that this ha- does happen, you know, that they have been privy to potential intelligence that this does happen. And I can point to constabularies around the UK, you know, there's um, perhaps a little unfortunate to pick on GMP, uh, but, you know, there is... Significant intelligence of police corruption there that to my mind has never actually been dealt with or if you if you look at um the met the london um again there's massive intelligence and details about corrupt corruption there that that's never been actioned because you can't that because the drug war the corruption of the drug war makes it, it too endemic and too powerful
0: We had John wedger on ex cop. And he was talking about when he first was doing these raids in London on the drug dealers, the police would just hand out the spoils amongst each other, the the cash and stuff, and just keep it. Just um, as an aside here, then, I've mentioned on previous podcasts how this illegal market in black market in drugs just gets bigger and bigger every single year. And the very thing that Neil just described. There's this vast amount of money, so much money available that they can send people to join the police. And that is because of drug laws. Drug laws have created this situation. From writing about Pablo Escobar, he could source his coca paste for $60 a kilo in the late 70s. Because of drug laws, back then it was going for $60,000 a kilo in America. It doesn't matter who they arrest, Escobar. El Chapo, that drug money just keeps flowing and it just gets bigger and bigger every single year. And until the politicians and the legislators put hand, put drugs back in the hands of doctors and decriminalize and legalize, then that record amount of profits for the gangsters is always going to be available. It's the biggest goal rush in the history of the world for gangsters mm. to be able to make money is the drug market created by drug laws, so
1: absolutely, and can can I just add add a certain dynamic to that yeah that's um it's it's not just actually the value in the drug market that's the problem it's the fact that by policing the drug market, we create monopolies now, the unregulated drug market is like the ultimate capitalist nightmare there's no regulation and no control at all, and as any economist knows that in any unregulated market monopolies appear, they do. But the trouble is, by policing the problem, police are helping them monop- create the monopolies and make them bigger, because what, what police do, they just they get rid of the competition, they thin out the competition. And actually, gangsters use police informants to do that to get rid of the competition. And the problem is when a monopoly grows in organized crime for drugs, it means they have a bigger slice of the pie, and if they've got a bigger slice of the pie, their ability to corrupt the system is improved. So by policing drugs, we cause the corruption.
0: And the other thing you've pointed out is that the gangsters react to the measures that the police take. Mm. So you start this undercover stuff and then the gangsters start having to increase their violence to intimidate the street level people into not snitching on them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: how does that keep going?
1: Well, it's a, it's a never-ending arms race. The police the police are actually really good at catching drug dealers really really good at it you know if you gave them twice the resources they'd catch twice as many but all it does is superheat the violence because it it creates that darwinian situation that the most successful gangster is the one who's less likely to be grassed up but also the one that is less that that can intimidate people not to introduce an, an undercover cop to them you know it the environment for undercover work just becomes more and more hostile all the time in fact that played out with um, the Burger Bar Boys, if you'd like me to tell you oh, a, yes, a, about that. Oh, yes, please, in detail. Now, I'd, I'd, I'd given up um, undercover work after the Nottinghamshire job because Cammy, who I'd befriended, when he was arrested, he ended up uh, being on suicide watch. And that's not because he was scared of going to jail or any other reason. It's because I betrayed him because he thought i was his only friend in the world the only literally the only person he could speak to
0: just to give a bit bit of background then because we talked a lot about the gangsters when you're going in and you're meeting cammy and you you, you start spending a lot of time with these people don't you and you learn their sad stories and their histories and can you can you, can you perhaps describe cammy's personal story or his history or any of the people that you met around that time
1: well, yeah, I mean, and I knew other peoples in much more detail, to be honest. Cammy's, I only knew uh, briefly, but he found that I was someone he could talk to about the way he was feeling, and and uh, so he saw me as his number one friend in the world. But there was there's another example, a woman in in Northampton, who I remember one day actually I, I played rattling because sometimes you know you can't just be the person with the money all the time. So I turned up, no money, I'm rattling today. And I could act it quite well. And she looked at me this morning. She says, uh, hey, mate, you're hanging out, aren't you? You're hanging out, you're rattling. I says, yeah, yeah. And I was all hunched, like I've got stomach cramps and stuff. And she uh, she put her hand in her pocket and gave me five quid. I says, yeah, but mate, you're going to want that, aren't you? She says, yeah, but I'm all right for the next four hours. So that's the what pure generosity is that, that at that moment, her perception was that I needed it more than her, at least for the next four hours is there a more pure generosity than that and she she was she was a lovely uh, woman um but i learned a lot about her history and she said that i can do my rattle i can stop taking heroin and i do sometimes for a tolerance break but the trouble is when i stop taking it i get suicidal because i remember the sexual abuse that my uncle used to give me i can remember the thing, the feeling of his fingernails and so for her, and so many other people, heroin is a very powerful painkiller of the body. It's also a very powerful painkiller of the mind. So actually, her taking heroin was a very rational decision. It was actually keeping her alive and preventing suicidal thoughts. And um, for someone who's so generous to other people, you know, that's just it's it's just horrifying that she's abandoned by the state to struggle on the streets with that. With That problem
0: because when I was a kid, I was raised with images of heroin addicts, people living under bridges, like zombified people who would just go out and with knives and stuff and rob people at ATMs or do shoplifting. And they'd, all of, the day rolled around getting high, and these people were like really demonic people. Now, I end up in prison in Arizona where 90% of the prison population was injecting heroin or crystal meth, two thirds of deadly diseases like hep C. So even though they had the yellow jaundice skin the teeth rotting out they knew they were going to die. Mm. The whole day just revolved around getting the, the drugs into the prison and getting high. So I'm perplexed seeing this and in shock seeing this when I first go in. But over time as I gain their trust and they tell me their stories mm. thrown away as kids, raised on the streets, molested like you just described, yeah. seen the parents die all these absolutely horrific things had happened to them. And I thought, you know, I had a good education, I had a good family support, and I committed these crimes. And look at the situation. These people, and it made me feel doubly guilty for, for committing my crimes. So then I started to help them. A third of them couldn't even read or write. I'm doing, um, you know, basic literacy classes, helping the Mexicans to write home in Spanish and stuff like that. And um, even to this day, you know, people sometimes say, i started a blog i started writing what was going down down in this jail even the guards are murdering mentally ill prisoners in in one of the facilities And people sometimes say you know why do you want to help prisoners the pedophiles rapists murderers and i say look i felt that before i got arrested because that's all the media reports is extreme crimes on one side Mm. and how easy it is on the other they got the playstations they got gourmet food they got luxuries yeah, there are paedophiles, murders, rapists in, in, in prison, and, and, and prison—that's that, what prisons are for. They belong in there. I was a drug trafficker; I belonged in there. But Debitable. what? I, <laughs> but what I saw was that the the average arrest was just a low level drug user. Massive amount of people getting arrested for weed possession back then. Black kids, Mexican kids, with little bits of weed, getting two to five year sentences, mm. and then they graduate to heroin. The prison—they're so scared they click up with the gangs. Yeah, get these racist tattoos and eat swastikas on their faces and stuff, and they're ruined. And again, it's all a function of the war on drugs. I watched one of the leap speakers is it Peter Christ or Christ or something like Peter that? Peter Christ, yeah, Peter Christ,
1: yeah,
0: he's amazing. And he's he, he, he just nails it, doesn't he? He says, Prisons and the police will t- take person A out of society who harms person B, murderers, robbers, and if you go back years, that's how crime has been defined. Mm. a low-level drug user, a kid with weed, who's that person hurting themselves? Mm. Debatable again. Cry, cry for help, I think, for a lot from a lot of them because of the suffering that they're going through. Mm. Give them mentorship, send them over to mental health. Um, it, But we're putting them in prisons where we're just exacerbating the situation.
1: Yeah. But, I mean... I- you know, you say the young person using some weed or something. I, I mean, we have to. I have to say, now that I've gone on the complete journey, I think it's important to say that drug use is normal. It's very, very important to say that, and it can't be said often enough. 90% is non-problematic. The problems are caused by the drug laws. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the young person using some weed, it's normal behavior. You know, it's not necessarily self-medicating for anything. Most people do drugs because they're... Fun or they help them relax, you know.
0: So it's harm reduction. You're never going to stop people taking drugs. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Harm reduction is required. Yes, but the drug laws just throw that out the window.
1: Yeah, exactly. They do. Yeah.
0: So, Burger, what were they called the gang? The Burger Bar Boys. How did they get
1: that name? Um, it was a burger bar where they used to meet I think. <laughs> just just in in, in in birmingham um and they had a rival gang the johnson crew uh f- famous rivals and that that rivalry has meant in some, some all sorts of murders a very high profile double murder of uh, two two women uh know? charmaine harris and letitia shakespeare uh, who were machine gunned in the street
0: what was the reason that they did that
1: Missed that they thought they were someone else i think um it was just uh, someone con- they thought there was someone connected with the johnson crew and needed needed murdering um What were the roots of this gang um well some of them are second generation or were second generation um dealers so that you know they've been brought up in, into the lifestyle in a in a family sense um which is a terrifying dynamic of the way that the drug war is going to play out. Uh, we're in the third generation now, as, as we call it in drug wars. What, what's going to happen with the fourth? You know, we've got ten thousand children being exploited by drug gangs to deal drugs. But how are they going to be influenced as they grow up? You know, it's it's a terrifying prospect. So, I mean, that the, there was it was quite a large gang. Um, one of them, I can't remember what I call him in the book, but I'll I'll call him uh, I'll call him uh, Junior. He was the person who sourced the gun for that double murder, and he was in the car, and he was the only one who didn't get prosecuted. Four of them did. Um, and he was the guy who was leading the gang of six Burger Bar Boys who, would, who had taken over the supply in Northampton. So he was implicated in seven different murders in Birmingham, and he was seen as a um, Burger Bar Boys enforcer-type character. And he'd, he'd taken over Northampton. And the way that they took and taken over Northampton is a classic story. Northampton police had had some success against their local dealers. And the big gang from the big city stepped in and took over. You know, you the, you, the gap in the marketplace is just the way business works, <laughs> isn't it? You know, Richard Branson calls it, calls disruption good for business. And, you know, <laughs> where, where does that play out more than the drug markets? <laughs> so they took over Northampton, and that's when I got called in. Because... Um, they said, well, Woodsy, we need you to do this one. Because I'd given up undercover work at this point because I found Cammy and all that really too too distressing. Uh, but they persuaded me to to do it. And they said, look, Woodsy, you need to do this because these are even more vicious than the last lot. Uh, they're using rape as punishment and what? reputation building. You know, if, you, if you've got a sister or girlfriend and you've got a drug debt, then they're going to get raped. Or um, there were maimings. They were just... Unbound brutality, it, it, it really was. So, um, and, and in fact, one of the days um, one of the days when I had got to know them, that there was, I, I remember being briefed in the morning that there was a rape had happened, a gang rape, in the car that I'd been getting into. So that that morning, if I did get into the same car and I came out again, then I may well become, become part of the crime scene. So we had to have a strategy for then getting my clothes all bagged up just in case, because if she reported it, then they wanted to have some chance of some evidence. But of course she didn't report it. Who goes up against the burger bar boys? So um, so that's the kind of, you know, that was the backdrop to what their behaviour was as, as we were working. But I had to, because they, were, they weren't they were necessarily hands-on, they were mostly wholesale for, for the town, and there were six of them running the business. I had to work really hard to get an introduction to them directly. Um, so what I did is I picked on two people uh, who were a couple, man and a woman. They were both problematic heroin users, both supported each other, quite a good couple. Um, she was really good at selling the big issue. She'd be there from eight o'clock every morning outside the Marks and Spencers in Northampton. And he was quite a good job lifter which is quite weird because he walked with a crutch. He had chronic pain and an injury in his leg. But they supported each other. They had set up a dealing, but they were unaffiliated. So they got grassed up. So in other words, the burgers used a police informant to shut them down to get rid of the competition. They were lucky that that's the way they tackled it, I suppose. So they were on bail at the time. Um, So I picked on them because they were well-connected. And so I got them to introduce me to all the stolen property handlers, you know, to anyone who would take spirits, anyone who would take electronics, anyone who would take baby clothes. Baby clothes is massive. But I suppose they grow up so fast, don't they? So there's always a demand for baby clothes and child's clothes. Um, So I was like shoplifting or pretending to shoplift that and selling them stuff and, and then winning them over by, if I had any spare property left, like, if I say I'd sold a load of DVDs and I had some spare, I'd, I'd just give them to them as present, and I really got on with them really well. They were, again, they were really nice people, and but I was always moaning, saying, know, oh, I can only get these crappy ten bags off this guy or this guy." You know, I could do it doing some weights and maybe setting myself up as, you know, taking some weights out of the city and selling where the, you know, where it's safer to do it. So um, eventually, they said, "Yeah, all right, we'll introduce you to the Brummies." because they were well connected with them despite well i don't think they realized that the brummies had got rid of them in the way that they had um but they introduced me and um it was a really weird experience being taken to their sort of headquarters and they set up they held court in the local snooker club in the center of town um and it was very very odd because he's walking there alongside me with the walking stick and we're going towards it and he's made me learn a cover story because I'd only known him a few weeks. And he says, no, these. if I'm introducing you, we've known each other for years. So we need to say where we've known each other from, what we've done together, who else we know. And he's making me learn all these names and places. And I'm thinking, God's sake, you know, let me just remember my own cover story. What are you trying to do to me? (laughs) Turning me schizophrenic or something. (laughs) So that was a bit uncomfortable. Uh, And then we went into the snooker club and we were directed into the gents' toilets straight away. And the der- the door burst open and this hooded figure came in, um, went into the cubicle, stood on the toilet and looked over the cubicle and said, What's this? And the door burst open again and these four hooded figures came in and they started walking around me. And as they're walking around me, then they occasionally headbutt me, like on the side of the ear. I don't know if you've ever been battered on the side of the ear, but it really hurts. Um, and it's quite surprising too. And so I'd be pushed, head buttered one way, and I'd be pushed another and butted next. Um, and while this is going on, he's asking me questions, and then he's asking him questions, and then he's rephrasing the questions and testing me a little bit. And I knew the reputation of these people, and I knew they would, they would be likely to just casually leave me in a mess. And I just became quite convinced I wasn't leaving that in one piece, I thought, I'm going to have a really serious beating here because it's what they do. And it, the, the sort of the feeling of impending violence was almost tangible. It was really tangible in the air. Are you completely at risk
0: in these situations whereby you've got no backup monitoring the situation? For example, if I don't come out in 10 minutes, you guys raid this snooker hall or you haven't got a panic button or any way to...
1: No, I think actually for... Th- for that operation, I actually think I had a smartphone, which was an open mic, but um, I, I would never be comfortable with backup being close to me because that, for my mind, makes me more at risk. I can account for my own actions, but I can't account for the actions of somebody else. So no, I generally was just on my own. So
0: anything can happen.
1: So anything can happen, yeah. And even if I did have the smartphone on, because most a lot of the time it didn't work even if even if i just had a smart smartphone on and anything's going to happen before i any backups coming anyway so it makes no difference so i'd rather not have anyone nearby to to risk risk me um so um so yeah i, I thought i was going to get a beating and all of a sudden it just stopped because he said all right then what do you want and in almost choreographed fashion as soon as he said what do you want they just went out in single file um and i said oh, i'll have one on one please uh, which are 0.4 of heroin, 0.4 of crack, 20 pound each. Gave him my 40 pounds and and uh, said, can I have your number? i put my number in a phone and, and that was it. I was into them then. Um, That was the most difficult moment just to get that introduction because once I'd got that number, then the, all six of them operated from that. And I say they were wholesale because they were running all the runners and other people in the town, but they were also hands-on as well. They were doing both sides. You know, they were... They were busy people making a lot of money and they were very good at making it as well. Um, but but yeah, they, but they were pretty brutal. Do
0: you have stories of their brutality other than what you described with the rapes?
1: There was one day I'd started wearing a camera uh, to get evidence of them. And uh, I think I'd been wearing a camera, I th- I think for at least a week. But this one morning, one day when I, and I finished seeing them, and I think one of them said, why do why we always end up meeting you here? So I thought, there's a little bit of suspicion here. There's some, something going on. So the next morning I thought, mm, do I wear the camera? Do I not? And I thought, no, I'm not going to. No, no, I'm not going to wear it today. Anyway, when I met, expecting to meet one of them, I met five of them. And then I think four of them put me in this big vehicle. And drove me, it wasn't a massive distance, but drove me to the edge of the race course, which is a park in the centre of Northampton. And there's a bit where there's a path, Go. there's some roads which sort of lead onto it. And they took me up to one of those dead end roads and took me to the edge of the park amongst the trees. One of them lifted his shirt up and showed me a gun tucked into his um, trouser top. It was tracky, tracky top. And he says, right, straight white boy. Come on, you're o Again, I'm thinking you're definitely not old enough. To have seen why five oh you're a child for fuck's sake, um, but it says five you five oh you heat you know we know you are you where have you come from where have you come from, and uh, they made me strip naked in the in the day at the edge of the racecourse park in, in Northampton, and I was very very happy I would not worn that on that camera <sighs> that day, very very happy indeed because I was almost smiling like this this is fucking terrifying but it could be a lot worse. Do you think they would have shot you? Most of the gangsters and people I've met have had an exaggerated reputation and have some some common sense and a sense of how they could make things worse. These guys, I think, had no idea. I think they would definitely have shot me. I think they would have not thought about the long-term circumstances. I thought they would have been quite sure they could get away with it um so yeah i think i was genuinely at risk
0: because with the story of kiki Camarina, which is in my upcoming book we are being lied to he was undercover dea in mexico and his attitude was they won would not der kill a u.s agent so he's even his wife was like trying to get him transferred back to america and he's like no you know because the violence is getting out of control of the cartel he was just saying look they won't kill a U.S. agent in Mexico. They won't do it at that level. They'll kill each other, but they won't kill a U.S. agent. And he was wrong. And that's um, mm-hmm. that. That's um, went right to the top of the cartel. That they would with the retaliation that came from the U.S. government. But I've got a quick question for you um, before we keep going with the burger stuff. You mentioned earlier that the police are very good at arresting drug dealers. Mm. Does that therefore mean? that the mafia or the cartel ultimately are perfectly designed to maintain and monopolise the drug business? Because all the low-level people just get wiped out, but something that's got the infrastructure of a cartel can just keep going.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely, but I wouldn't even say that it's the infrastructure of the cartel maintains it because it's, it's simpler than that, really, it, because it doesn't matter what level it is, whether it's the lowest street dealer, middle management, regional dealer, or even a whole cartel, If you arrest them, if you stop them, all you do is create an opportunity for somebody else, whether that's another cartel at the top, another street dealer at the bottom. So police are fantastic at catching drug dealers. And sometimes, sometimes, occasionally, they'll even catch some high up people, sometimes. Uh, But they don't reduce the size of the market. But they do change the shape of the market. And over time, that changing shape that caused by policing um, has got more brutal and uglier.
0: So after this situation with the Burger Bar boys, did you go back to wearing the wire?
1: Yeah, I did, yeah. Um, I didn't report the search because I didn't want the job to be pulled. And uh, That's something I learned quite on, earlier on with uh, undercover work, sometimes with the complicity of my handler or sometimes with the complicity of an investigating team member. You know, the first time I saw a gun, actually in Derby, did, I started writing it up on my notes and the, the the DC said, well, you can write that up if you want. You can pull that in, yeah. But we're not going to find the gun, are we? Unless we go looking for it now. And do you think we'll find it now, right? And when we do, and we haven't got any evidence. and We haven't got any evidence of dealing. What do you think will happen? So then the penny dropped. I had to just keep going and not report. you report reported, the job gets pulled. But If you keep going, you get evidence. So, so even the mechanisms of how this is investigated from the police point of view, I was breaking the rules. I was breaking the rules so many times. I was doing it for noble with noble intent, but the rules has been broken in order to try and catch people. I even I even AP'd somebody once, uh which means agent provocateur, which is the absolute no no, the absolute golden rule of undercover work, you do not um use out, an agent provocateur technique. But this guy sorry to go off on a No, you're sorry. fine, you've got we've got all the time, you just keep expand. Um, this um th- this guy in Dart well, was it Derby oh, I mean, Leicestershire? This guy in Leicestershire was burglaring houses uh, of old women. He was also an amphetamine dealer. They couldn't catch him, but they had clear intelligence that this guy was going into old women's bedrooms to, to steal from them, and it was terrifying them. So they couldn't catch him for the burglaries, but they thought, well, let's see if we can get him for the dealing. So I went in, and he was only a piss-pot dealer, really. But I talked him up because he was an obnoxious and foul creature. He really was. I talked him into, I was saying, look, mate of mine's just been let down on a kilo, uh, some coke um, and other stuff. And um, I talked him into, he, he was saying, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can, I can do, but it was beyond his capabilities. It was, and I was quite sure it was. So when we raided him, we got this kilo that was, that was like 0.1, 0.5% pure he just got an ounce or something and, like, bashed it down. <laughs> yeah, I'm capable of a kilo, you know. But So so there he was in court for for this, trying to sell a kilo, and that's not actually the reality, and he never was capable of it. So, really, I'd, I'd AP'd him. I'd, I'd, I'd uh, enticed him into committing an offence that he wouldn't have otherwise have committed or a more serious offence, which is wrong. You know, it is wrong. Uh, it's in the basic instructions for undercover work that you don't do that. But, um but you believed that was for
0: the greater good because of what he was doing. Yeah,
1: you call it noble corruption, but you know if, if I was still in the job, I could be sacked for admitting that.
0: So, where is the line drawn in this country then between the quantity of drugs you're arrested with and the purity?
1: Well, a good solicitor might have sorted that out and got him to to make an issue of it, but he pleaded guilty and, and um, that would appear. I don't know the discussions that went on between him and his solicitor but that would appear to be very poor advice really because um, because if you'd just taken a bit to look at it or understand you know a solicitor maybe didn't didn't understand that that was utterly ridiculous because that's not a kilo is it it's not a kilo it's an ounce at best you know so um, yeah at best so it's just the way the legal system often works Um and
0: do the police sometimes establish themselves as undercover sellers, and what's the purity of the drugs they would use in that
1: case? No, you never get any never not in this country. I know they have some weird ways of doing stuff in America that confuses the hell out of me, but no no, you, you never never pose as sellers. I mean, I pretended to be a mid level dealer when I was buying to say I was going to be then selling it on elsewhere plenty of times um but you don't supply. You never, supply is always supply. Supply is always unlawful. I see. Okay. Okay. So going
0: back to the burger bar then, you're back. You've got your wire back on now. How are your interactions with them now?
1: Completely back to normal. They were absolutely fine and, and a bit cheeky actually. Um, like, like they were happier with me. So so one day I'd, I'd phone up and say, uh, it'd be my second buy in the day. And I said, yeah, can you do a one-on-one? And they'd go, uh, oh, you're such a bad boy. Yeah, yeah, man, you can have one-on-one. Yeah, And right, quite quite friendly with me then. It was a bit strange. And then a few days after that, or a couple of weeks afterwards, I remember getting in the car, because they are generally, one would be driving in the front or two in the front and driving someone in the back and you'd get into the back and the guy at the back would serve you up. So I got in this big, car with them one day and this absolute fug of ganja smoke fug of weed smoke came out of the car. It's like, Jesus Christ it's some kind of weird hot box or something and (laughs) um, they were not, they normally were really sharp and dead professional and they didn't use any drugs at all but this day they obviously decided to get absolutely caned I mean I went went, went in, sat next to him and he's looking at me like through almost closed eyes (laughs) and he looks at me because and weirdly, for this operation, almost as a sort of um, a weird bolstering of my own courage somehow that I decided to use a cover name similar to my own. And this was a reaction to how close the corruption was in the previous job, if you know what I mean. It was me taking the, like, taking the piss out of the system that, well, if I've got undercover cops on my backup team, potentially. It was my sense of humor at the time. But anyway... I was for that job operation, I was being known as Woody, so I get in the back of this car, and he's looking at me with the eyes closed, and he's looking at me and saying, "Woody man, why they call you Woody Man? Is it cause you looks like Woody Allen man? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, I wouldn't have said so, but I'm thinking so I came out with this bizarre story <laughs> which I just sometimes you just go think on your feet and go with it and I says well no actually it's because it's of what when I was younger some some of my mates used to call me um, see I had skin cancer on my head just there and it was and I had to have it lasered off and I said you can probably still see the scar and he went oh yeah so I said uh, yeah so it's it, you know I don't know if the scar's gone but maybe it's a bit there but I had to have it lasered on my head now do you remember the to- the film Toy Story I said and he went oh yeah yeah obviously a Toy Story fan Um, I says well you remember when the naughty kid picks up Woody and he burns his head with a magnifying glass and he went yeah yeah I says well I had my skin cancer at the time that Toy Story was out so my mates saw that and found it funny and took the piss out of me and they called me Woody because of the skin cancer and it's stuck ever since (laughs) and this seven times murderer gangster from Birmingham looked at me and went oh man that's so mean <laughs> which just goes to show really you know perhaps when he was 14 15 he didn't think he'd grow up to be a murdering gangster and it actually had some humanity behind all of that
0: when you say seven times murder then what yeah. do you mean by
1: that the intelligence said he was implicated in seven murders in Burnham. seven murders
0: mm. and you said earlier that they protect you against that information b so when you're going in Oh, well, did, earlier you know, on, did you know that on this I, case? I know
1: all of. I knew all of their intel for this one. I, 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 I wanted to know, and the ruling was that I could know.
0: Yeah. And do you know anything about the murders that he'd committed?
1: I don't know. I mean, some of them were rival, connected with the Johnson crew. I do know that it was part of their war. Who um, the Johnson crew? Johnson crew were a rival, a rival gang that they were at war with for a long time, um, and another uber aggressive. Um, uh, gang in Birmingham. I think the, the John, the name Johnson Crew come, comes from Johnson Close, where some of them, some of them lived. So, it was um very much a postcode kind of gang culture, really. Um, loyalties and regional sort of territory.
0: So the Burger Bar Boys have accepted you back in the crew now, and they're acting cocky with you. You said that you actually called them on one of the occasions and and discussed the whatever it was the deal. Are you obtaining wiretap phone call information as well as recording them on your little camera? Because my case, it was all wiretaps was the main evidence.
1: Uh, I did do some recordings, uh, but again, the tech wasn't brilliant. the The tech for the video was actually incredible for this one. I, I had it; they had the unusually really high quality it's called an eagle and it's a tiny box and for the time it was brilliant tiny box and a wire and the camera and sound was at the end of a wire It was really it's amazing
0: so you're filming them there's actually a, a, a lens pointing at the
1: person yeah yeah
0: so how come that doesn't like twinkle or something the lens they can't it's tiny it. it's so small it
1: was remarkable. Really? it's remarkable yeah that small. Like yeah you should, yeah still and the, the mic's on the same point as well right yeah that and that was um so it's a little metal box that had to be downloaded. It was it was remarkable. Yeah. But the recording, the phone calls, was done on um, not a wire, not a uh, what you would call a facility in the UK. Uh, it would just use the donut. It's called a donut, and it would just be attached to the phone, and then in a donut shape, and then to a, re- a basic recording device. Mm. So then you go through the procedure of re- exhibiting that recording before you did it, and then did it. Mm-hmm. Tricky thing to do on plot. So it'd be like I'd, I'd do it, um, get one of the backup team to get them to do it on a vehicle or something and then drop me off or something like that. Um, I didn't do that many recordings of the phone conversations, though, I don't think.
0: So what is the criteria for the amount of evidence you need on the Burger Bar boys before your job is done?
1: Um, well, the main thing... F- Intent and the main thing for those and those kind of operations is to get evidence of conspiracy uh, because that is can be stronger in court and it can also look mean bigger sentences and also it helps with evidence of other peripheral people involved as well. So it would be conversations, um, evidence of phone number, you know, phone data, that kind of thing, and building a picture over time of their movements and the communications between them. Um, so you take time to build up a picture but i mean quite often you could see it in simple terms that well you've got enough evidence against somebody if you've got three corroborated buys individually or three corroborated instances of offenses but i was getting 20 30 instances off some of them because it was about building up the bigger picture because also i you know i would be connected and and uh buying off other people connected to them as well i was where it was safe to do so, I was networking in a in a broader sense. And by the end of the operation, there was a couple of other people involved as well, but there were 96 people in Northampton roped up into the, into the evidence of that whole operation, 96. It's not that big a place, Northampton. But after seven months, the criteria really for deciding that the job was over, that there was no one else to find. There was no other dealers to get to know, no other connected people, no other runners, No phone numbers to get everybody involved in that trade in Northampton we'd got in the bag. We thought we're going to wipe out the trade overnight. We've got so many people. Um, And it was a massive expensive operation actually. They got help from five, there were five constabularies cops. They got help from all the surrounding areas. Massive raids, all the burger bars boys, boys caught. So many other people locked up. Anyway, I had a phone call with the intel guy a week or two weeks later. And he says, yeah, Woody, um, we've managed to interrupt the heroin and crack cocaine supply in Northampton for a full two hours. Two hours. Two hours before there was another phone number on the streets and everyone knew where to go. Two hours. Now, that's not even enough time to rattle. That's not even enough time to rattle because you'd need four hours for that from heroin. But you can imagine the scene though, can't you? I don't know this for certain, but you can imagine the Johnson crew hearing that the burgers had been raided in Northampton and they'd be laughing, thinking, yeah, fantastic. Put the call in. Get an lex- extra load of stuff in now. You know, we're going to make a killing. <laughs> we take over that market. Du- <laughs> doubling
0: our profit overnight. Thank you, the police. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how I felt when Sammy the Ball he got arrested a year or two before me. I was like, the police have just done me a favour. <laughs> I can take all his customers now. Yeah. So, in terms of taxpayer expense, how much would an operation like taking the Burger Bar boys
1: down have cost the taxpayers? Oh, God. I mean, the, the numbers, maybe I should work try and work out the numbers one day. It's quite difficult, but I do know it was it is considered the most expensive operation police can do. And even though there's been very much a, a rolling back of the amount of expenditure police forces spend on investigating drugs... It has been reduced significantly. It's still the biggest slice of the policing budget, drugs, because there's more arrests and uh, dealings with drugs than anything else. So it's the biggest part of the policing budget, which is why, actually, that Durham Durham Constabulary, run by Ron Hogg, and, and it was the, the Chief Constable Mike Barton, <clears throat> they took the view that... And they announced it publicly. They were not going to be locking up anyone for cannabis possession. They're not going to be doing warrants for grow uh, cannabis grows. Uh, they're not going to be prioritising these things and they're going to put the re- those resources into other things. As a result of that, for four or five, I think it's four years running, they have scored the highest amongst all the constabularies in the UK. They've scored outstanding on every measure because that's where they've put their resources. So there's very clear evidence there that the police can achieve things much better if they if they don't investigate drugs so much
0: just from taking money from one drug cannabis just I, yeah just cannabis, yeah, and I imagine that is because cannabis is the most commonly used drug, yeah, pretty much everywhere, so the vast amount of resources with all all of that dealing with all of that um and of
1: course, a lot less people in Durham have ended up with criminal convictions that would, would have ruined their lives as well,
0: yeah so. Burger bars, bar boys get busted.
1: What kind of sentences? Uh, nine and 10 years each.
0: And they only have to serve 50%?
1: Um, generally do about two thirds, I think. What, um, what
0: about the guy being involved in seven murders?
1: Well, there was no evidence about murders. That's only the intelligence that I can remember seeing. So he was—he got 10 years for the conspiracy supply um, heroin and crack. So no evidence against him for rapes. Or maimings, they only got sentenced for the um, for the drugs.
0: So with Epstein getting suicided in prison, I've been asked about all the methods that prisoners, you know, can get killed in prison. Yeah, and a, pr- a method that the gang employ <laughs> is to just overdose a prisoner with heroin because mm. then just looks like another addict has took too much drugs. There's no investigation. There's nothing. Yeah. One of the interesting things I read in your books was you noticed this pattern in Brighton.
1: Yes. Now, um, Brighton, I should set the scene really, because most of the cops I'd worked with around the country, was there were some really intelligent, professional people, brilliant people in Nottinghamshire, Northamptonshire, really, really good people wherever I'd worked, uh, worked, you know, doing the wrong kind of work, but they didn't know that yet, and they were... Uh, They maybe don't know that, but they were well-meaning. The cops I worked for in Brighton, they were a different breed altogether. They were obnoxious. They were a small team who had been doing this kind of undercover work, but in a very low-level sense, old-school sense, and they'd been overusing the tactic, like in in a simple terms, way overusing it. And I was sent down there to, to try and revive their operation because they weren't having quite the success. And what struck me about these people is, now police, you can have a a real canteen culture. It can be harsh. There can be harsh humour, um, dark humour. But these were a bit different. Um, you know, they, they, for example, someone would overdose on heroin uh, that they knew, and they'd just joke that, oh, maybe maybe shoplifting will go down today. You know, it's just another dead smackhead, and that that was. It was uncomfortable, but apart from their attitude, you know, the the guy who ran the team was a bit of a bit of a bully, and it was just an unpleasant environment. You know, the briefings—it's just horrid. But I went out dutifully, went you know, try and figure the place out. And uh, wherever you go, you have to get a feeling of of the place. You know, you have to walk around the streets and speak to people and observe people and how people are behaving. Now, at the time. Brighton had the highest drug deaths per capita than anywhere else in the country, which is quite typical of seaside towns. They tend to have the biggest drug deaths. Uh, But it was by a long way, by a long way. And they had had for seven years running. And there was a big difference between them and the next highest in Blackpool. And the place was just grim. The underbelly of Brighton was so, so dark. I mean... The, the homelessness obviously it was huge, but just the street people, the people hung around on the streets, maybe lived in squats and Hank hung around in those clicks, you know, there was just a dark mood. And very quickly, I found it was very different to any, anywhere else. Anyway, eventually, I got talking to some people. Um, and some of the people I got to know, not all of them, but some of the people I got to know were, were, were very, very convinced that recent overdose deaths that were recorded as overdoses were murders very convinced of this very convinced and i fed this back to the team and they just, they just laughed at me it says you know junkies die every day what the fuck are you talking about don't be so stupid why would they do that why would they kill the customers are you thick so i carried on working and, and the problem is whereas i could buy secondhand from homeless people that's where you start an operation, but you have to get introduced and move to the gangsters. Otherwise, what's the point? But the team I was working for were quite happy to just catch homeless people because as far as they were concerned, if they sell you drugs, they're a dealer. My argument was, well, they're not a dealer. They're not dealers. They're, they're just homeless people. But for them, it was just numbers. So I'm trying to get to the gangsters, and it was explained to me by several people. You don't get close to the gangsters here. There's three gangs cell here. There are a few local people, but generally there's three gangs. There's one from Liverpool, one from Birmingham and one from London. And much as the country's run now, much, you know, around the country. And um, they have designated a point of contact or a certain points of contact. One of them's me for this gang, he says. If I bring you even close to their car when I go meet them, they, they've told me they'll kill me. And they've told me that they've done that to other people and I know that guy they're talking about. So I'm not going to piss them off. I'm going to do as I'm told. And the way they were working is he would take all the orders from, say, eight people, take all the money and then put the call in, go to meet them and then come back to that group of people and dish it out. So he becomes the proxy dealer, the buffer zone between any undercover cops and, and them. Quite smart, really. Basic strategic response to a repetitive problem because they'd overused the tactic. So I explained this and they, they weren't impressed at all. They thought, you know, you. we thought you meant to have a good reputation, what you're doing. You're a bit shit really, aren't you? Um, but it was, it was incredibly depressing because whereas I cannot say there were casual murders, I can't, because there would have to be a full investigation in order to determine that. But what I would say is the people I was reporting to were not willing to even consider it and what i can also say is there were several people i met in brighton that were completely convinced that casual murders were happening as reputation building isn't to make sure that that relationship was enforced so um i mean that was that was really the beginning of of my mental health problems i think years of um, near death experiences too much adrenaline um it it just made me realize this is the future. There's always going to be a darker tactic. And this is a result of trying harder or overusing a tactic. Then this is the this is what the future looks like. This is the future. You know, this is it's only going in one direction. And the real problem for me emotionally, though, was that when I look back on people like Cammy or the couple that I uh, manipulated in Northampton, I knew I was causing those people harm by manipulating them and enrolling them into my, what I was doing. I knew that their lives would be made worse by coming into contact with me. Because when the dust settled, they were the Muppets who introduced the undercover cop. What shit are they going to get? And some of them, you know, they're going to get shit. You know, some of them get sent to prison. They're, They're in trouble. And I knew that. And I knew that I was causing emotional difficulties when I befriended people and betrayed them. I know, I knew. But I justified it to myself. I thought well yeah but I'm going to catch the bad guy. So the end justifies the means. And that's that I kept going with that. I actually spent time thinking of the ethics. I did. I thought them through in my head and and, and I agreed to myself to keep going on. So suddenly when I looked at the future in Brighton and I thought well no because this has happened as a result of my actions and other undercover cops. This we've got to this terrifying arms race, in this terrible situation where it's just got worse and worse and now people are dying. And that's my fault. You know, you look back on the futility of the burger bar boys and the rest there, but it's worse than futile. It's actually, it's tangibly been made worse by my actions. So that's bad enough to conclude, but then I had to then suddenly my mental health took a tumble because then I'm reviewing everything I've done. I'm looking back thinking of the harm that I've caused. And I've justified it to myself. But of course, it's not justifiable. I've only been causing harm and, and my rationale was was twisted. And that's really, that's really difficult. It was really difficult to deal with. Still is difficult to deal with, to be honest. Because it's the logic of the battlefield, isn't it? You risk somebody, you cause harm to someone to catch someone else. That's like a general saying, right, I'm going to sacrifice that platoon to win the battle. And that's got no place in civil society. And I and I was part of that infrastructure.
0: So you mentioned your mental health, and one of the themes of good cop, bad war is your family. So how did this job affect your relations with your family members?
1: Well, I mean, I had a difficult relationship with my <clears throat> with my wife anyway. I, I realized actually I'd got married perhaps unwisely but by that time I got two young kids and weirdly it became a relief to escape from the pressures of that marriage working undercover so it was a bizarre situation that I was going buying crack off the streets and it was a relaxation from home life would you have to sometimes spend weeks away from your family completely not that often actually uh, I would I would arrange my work so that I would tell people I was having a tolerance break or going thieving somewhere and I would take, you know, two or three days off. Some, some job operations I would take every weekend off for ages and I'd still manage to get home and take my kids swimming on a Sunday morning. So that was great. I still had that relationship with my kids and I'd be reading them a story at uh, weekends and, and stuff. So it was a, an incredible contrast between what was going on and especially at times of extreme uh, risk. But it's comforting to come home and talk to your kids, you know. Was there
0: ever a point where you were with your family and you were out in public and you saw someone?
1: No, no, I've never been. I I think all of the places I've been deployed was sufficiently distance, uh, sufficient distance away to be to be pretty safe. You know, I worked as far north as Leeds, as far south as Brighton, lots of places in between, but not that close to books. And perhaps the riskiest one was Stoke, actually, because lots of people do. There is an overlap of families, and you know, people know each other and. Those towns, but but no, thankfully not.
0: So you got married young. You had two kids. You're in this job. Stress is taking its toll on you, and that's going to be fed through to your family. That energy is it somehow?
1: I don't know. No, I, I, my home. I mean, I I never took any stresses home. I don't think. um I was quite good at compartmentalising it and suppressing that stress. But perhaps the way that I suppressed that stress caused me more stress at the time because i couldn't talk to my wife about it um i wasn't meant to tell anybody what i was doing so i couldn't talk to anybody about it and that was a very clear instruction you can't tell people about this so they provided no way of discussing it with anyone couples come
0: home from work at the end of the day and discuss what they've done you can't say anything at all
1: no no i can't no
0: wow so you're internalizing it and that's aggravating your mental health
1: yeah I mean it took a long time for it to have that impact Uh, and I wasn't even aware at the time that that's that that I was uh, adding to my harm by that sort of insular um, situation
0: so it seems as like that your career trajectory has reached in the climax in Brighton with the mental health issue and the darkness of what's going on with these hotshots and stuff yeah do you still push this and try and get to meet the gangsters somehow in Brighton no, I had to
1: walk away. Right. Uh, yeah, I I walked away. Uh, I only did two months into that job, I think, uh, which was meant to be six months as a as a plan. But no, I I, I had to walk away. Um, I was getting nowhere, and 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 I'd reached a point I I just couldn't in all conscience carry on. So at that point, I I tried to stay in the in the job and change things daft thing to think now, really, but I was uh, thinking um, there must be a way I can change things or influence things from the inside, but you can't influence things from inside that big machine. You know, I tried to become part of the international, the national uh, drugs experts to try and because impl- I knew one of them was involved in policy and meeting politicians. So I thought if I'd maybe get that role, I can start telling the truth from the inside. But the whole machine is just charged up to keep fighting the drug war you know um so what was your new career within the police well i i say i worked over 14 years undercover but i didn't work all the time so i would do seven months and i would go back to conventional detective work for a few months and then i would do another operation so i qualified as a detective in 2000 i think and um so i did conventional ground level detective work and then i became a detective sergeant so i would supervise uh, serious crime investigations, rapes and things like that.
0: Did you do any homicide investigations?
1: Yeah, I did a few. Yeah, uh, not... But homicide murders are... Um, they're done in a very particular way in the UK. So you'd be put on a team as part of the outside inquiry team. It's a big team does a murder. The structure of it is quite quite complicated. You know, you have your homes operators, the computer operators, statement readers... Um. Your detectives, so then you'd have a senior investigating officer who would direct everything. So it's a big operation of murder in the UK.
0: Are there any murder cases you can describe that you worked on?
1: Um, yeah, there was one horrifying one um, at, the, at Ashbourne. What was her name? I can remember the offender's name, Mark Deitch. He was the he was the murderer, and this was a really tragic one because. Um, it was police incompetence which which led to this woman getting murdered. Mm. Um, sy- I mean, I don't know how systematic it was. I, I can't remember what the investigation into the police actually concluded, but I know one person got sacked um, and the person got disciplined. But essentially, it was a domestic violence problem. This girl, uh, very middle class uh, background in Ashbourne. And um, she'd been going out with this 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 guy, Mark Deitch, and... Um, she decided that he was a bit creepy, and she wanted to break it off. And he didn't—he didn't like that. He didn't—he he saw her as property. And um, he was hassling her with phones and threats and threats by proxy. And she kept reporting this to the police that she was scared of various instances. And there was recordings of harassment on the on the system, but no particular evidence of any investigation into that harassment. And this kept happening. And then one day she. Uh, was driving into her village, her car park where she lived in her village and there were four men waiting for her who beat her with baseball bats. Um, The only thing that they took was a watch which had been given to her, a very expensive watch given to her by Mark Deitch. This was reported to detectives. Now, I know it's easy to say with hindsight, but it doesn't matter. I know as a detective what I would have done instantly there. There was only one suspect for that. I'd have instantly got a warrant for his house and and gone to arrest him. It's, no, you know, it's not it's not complicated, who it's likely to be, is it? In those circumstances, but that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And so, uh, sometime later, the next instance was um, she was stopped by a car on a country lane, and her head blown off with a shotgun. And. Um, it's not unreasonable to suggest that that could have been prevented. Now, don't get me wrong. I've worked with incredibly professional detectives and Derbyshire Constabulary generally are one of the best anywhere. They are brilliant. But it just goes to show that, you know, the system can break down and there was genuine incompetence led to those, that series of um, that, those circumstances and that poor woman's death.
0: How many murder cases did you investigate?
1: Um... I think, when in nine, not in 1999, when I was learning to be a detective. Probably four, maybe.
0: How many of those were solved?
1: Um, all of them.
0: And was it generally, like you hear this cliche, it's usually someone the victim knows. Is that, is that in your experience, was that the case?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. 90% of murders are by someone uh, that's known. I think it's over 90%. And most of those are domestic, yeah um so it's why choose
0: a female victim
1: yeah yeah absolutely it's the biggest the, the single biggest um reason women die worldwide is domestic violence that statistic was quite was quite recent it's not surprising uh, which is why we should be taking domestic violence in far far more seriously and also it brings us back to the war on drugs all the resources we spend on the war on drugs and women are getting murdered if, and you would, you would be able to safeguard people. You would be able to investigate those harassments more effectively if those resources were directed that way.
0: One of the stats, or I don't know I heard it in a, in a speech by one of the LEAP um, speakers, was that since the war on drugs has started, the rate at which murders are solved in America has, has has gone down because there's an incentive to make all these arrests for arrest quotas and stuff and just, you know, the easiest people to arrest... Uh, people possessing drugs, and then they get more federal funding and more this and more that to finance uh, the department. So there's this like incentive not to solve the murders.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean the the, mur- the murder detection rate, the murder murder solving rate, is actually a, a very very important, very important topic, and it's one of one of my favorite topics that I try and explain actually, because what happened in America. Uh, from the point when Nixon re-declared the war on drugs in his aggressive way, at the point that he declared that, the murder detection rate in the United States was 85%. 85%, and it had been that high for quite a while, consistently. Within four years, it dropped to 65%, within four years, and it's not climbed above that since. Now, if you consider that the 1980s and 90s have had Enormous steps forward in forensic science, both improved fingerprinting technology, uh, the ninhydrin fingerprinting, all that kind of stuff, the DNA techniques. All of these adv- advances in forensic science should have taken it in the other direction, but it's not improved above 65%. Now, I've been predicting that, that we will we will suffer that drop in this country for the same reasons. Now, that we're always going to be much slower to, to suffer that loss in the United States because we don't have guns on the streets. That's why it was so quick in the States, because of the guns. Now, I, I, I slightly disagree with the reasoning of whoever said that it, why that has happened. Because to me, it's, it's quite clear that uh, the most important part of policing in solving crime is connection with the community. And what the war on drugs does is separate police and community. And so there's no flow of information. And as organised crime have become more dominant in those communities, replacing the police connection, then organized crime controls the narrative in those communities. So a murder, if organized crime don't want a murder solved, then, they, then the pressure is them not to talk to the police. So that 20% shift is a numerical shift between the from the power of police to organized crime. Now, I've been predicting it will happen here, and the last announcement of detection rates from the Met started with a statement from Cressida Dick that murders are getting harder to solve. That was the words that she used. Now, traditionally in the UK, we have some of the best murder detection rates in the world, especially considering we have such a big population. Hover's around 90%. 90% for a long, long time. Last announcement, 77%. And that's going to fall.
0: Do you know what the most common method of murder is in the UK?
1: I think it's um it's knives i think knives. i think even domestics even domestics it's knives i think with, with knives yeah and of course the knife crime on the streets has bumped up that statistic
0: there's been breaking news in the last couple of days that someone has confessed a murderer in the prison system has confessed to the murder of Teresa Holbach. Which Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are presently doing time for. Have you watched Making a Murderer?
1: No, I haven't. No, okay. No, but... <laughs> well, that's an interesting confession, though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah.
0: So we'll see what develops with that. Yeah. Um. Leap. Who are Leap? Let's 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 tell the people out there.
1: Leap is the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and we are a rapidly growing international movement of police and other law enforcement figures who believe the same as I have. They've come to the same conclusions. We're generally people who've been on the front line in the in the drug war uh, and seen the same kind of things as me and come to the same conclusions. Started in the United States in 2002. Um, there are some wonderful people in LEAP in the United States, people like Diane Goldstein, uh, Neil Franklin, who's the chairman uh, Lee Maddox who featured in Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream brilliant,
0: some... brilliant book, Chasing the Scream Really recommend people Read that, especially what, what he says about Harry Anslinger and
1: all that stuff Yeah, it's fantastic isn't it, Yeah, yeah. Johan's amazing Well, So Lee, Lee Maddox is the one who features from Leap in there uh, And we have spread a lot, you know, in, in the UK We have former chief constables Security services, military Other undercover cops like me There's, there's a few of us now um, Former DI's uh, we have lots of serving police who are speaking to us who want to be members, but they're not quite confident about about doing that yet. Um, but you know, but we're growing rapidly. We uh, two years ago we launched Leap Scandinavia, and now half of their membership of serving police. There's 35 members, 16 of them are serving cops. We've even got um, in in Scandinavia. We've even we've even got criminologists for, who teach the police from Denmark and Norway. Uh, later this year we launched leap france we've got leap germany leap australia we're speaking to sympathetic police all over the place south africa we've got members in poland um and, and we are growing rapidly it's uh, if anyone wants to help us organize and we are about to we were about to ask for volunteers for leap uk actually because we need help in all the projects and how we need can to people
0: do. watching this video do that is there a link i can put below this video that people can contact you or get involved somehow
1: yeah, well, I mean, the best way that we communicate with the public is is Twitter, I think, because that Twitter tends to be where the drug policy debate goes. You know, uh, politicians are involved in the and, uh, on the debate on there. So our Twitter um, name is at UK Leap. It's the same for Instagram, I believe. We're also active on Facebook, or you can email our website uh, at the support address on the on the website. Um we we're not exactly sure how the roles are going to shape up yet but we 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 are a voluntary organisation we struggle to get funding so um if anybody out there is good at getting funding is good with social media or or, or think they have skills or experience they can offer us that we don't even understand then uh, then please please do get in touch and uh, if if you do nothing else then please follow us on social media and spread the word because um You know, in trying to bring an end to this war on drugs, I do spend a lot of time speaking to politicians. I I was actually, I was at the Labour Party conference yesterday, speaking at a well-attended event. Next week, I'm at the Conservative conference. So, you know, we do a lot of political advocacy, and that is important. But what's more important than politicians is everyone out there. Because if, if, if you agree with us, that this is a crisis and we have to end the drug war. We need to regulate the drug markets and take the power away from organised crime. If you agree with us, then you are part of the social movement. And it's the social movement that's important because it's the social movement that drives politics. And the social movement is actually growing rapidly. It really is. But if you look at other social movements in history, social justice issues, uh, okay, homosexuality, for example, was illegal. And then after it was made legal, there was still massive prejudice. And you'd watch some comedy in the 1970s, and it's brutally unkind to gay people. But society has changed. But it's changed through social movement, not from leadership, really. And sometimes it's hard to put your your finger on exactly where the tipping point comes for something like that. But we're reaching the tipping point. And anybody out there can help us reach that tipping point if you if you just join the social movement, explain this to other people, point other people to this podcast to listen to it, get people to listen, get people to read the books, get people to follow us on social media.
0: And all those links are going to be in the description box below this video. So what do you think about the hypocrisy of key politicians in the war on drugs like Clinton, notorious cocaine user and abuser, his brother, Roger, was arrested and undercover, um, sold him cocaine. He's talking about like Bill having a nose like a vacuum cleaner. And then Clinton gets in power, and there are hundreds of thousands of nonviolent drug offenders getting incarcerated. Record number of women getting put into the American prison system, feeding all these private prisons. How can you make progress with people who are just have these hypocritical
1: uh, double standards like that? Well, it makes it really difficult, doesn't it? I mean, I would be cautious with the anger, though. That, that's, that's, that's what I would say. Because if you, if you bring it to a UK uh, perspective, being angry merely about the hypocritical nature of it, being angry just about Johnson having used cocaine or Gove having used cocaine or whoever it is, just being angry about it, that's not necessarily helpful. What we need is to use that narrative to explain and help the social movement grow, that drug use is normal. It's normal. Politicians do it. For all levels of society, there will be people, for for whatever reason, they're into a particular drug. You know, uh, it, w- whether it's tens of thousands of people at Boomtown want to drop a pill and dance to some dance music, it's normal. It's normal human behaviour. And that's the narrative we need to have. That's what we what we need to say. And actually in the UK, there's beginnings. There's the hint of that starting to happen because in the question time that came after some revelations about, I think it was the Michael Gove one, in question time, it was absolutely astonishing because you would got um, a panel of politicians and I think it was a, a Plaid Cymru politician, I can't remember his name now, said, well, I have to out myself as a gay man who used to go clubbing in the 90s. And he says, it would be pretty weird if I hadn't used drugs. And he was basically saying, yeah, I used drugs without any problem through the 90s, and I loved it. And then it went to the next person on the panel, which was Stephen Kinnock from Labour. And he says, well, yeah, I must start myself uh, also as an MDMA user. I used to go clubbing, and I really enjoyed it. And it was going around this panel, and it's like, what? <laughs> and the point that Stephen Kinnock and the other one was making is drug use is normal, and we need to start having that conversation. Next person also confessed to some drug use and then went to the Conservative member. And it was this utterly bizarre. I'm not one singling out a Tory in particular. It just so happened that she looked a bit uncomfortable at the end. It's this bizarre situation where everyone's expecting, right? All right, your turn. Come on then. And she said, Yeah, well, I used a bit of cannabis once at university, didn't like it. But it was almost like she couldn't say nothing. And that is a remarkable moment. It is genuinely a remarkable moment where enough hypocrisy. When asked the question, those politicians are saying, yeah, I used drugs, I enjoyed them, and they didn't cause me any harm. That's what we want from our politicians, and that's what we want more of.
0: Because what Rick Ross was pointing out, I mentioned the big-time California dealer. um, What he points out now after he's been released is the fact that, you know, his cocaine supplier was sponsored by the CIA, and they, the the Coke, the crack was targeting these black neighborhoods, and then they were getting these life sentences for small amounts of crack, the black population, and, and that it doesn't get more hypocritical to, than that. But my question for you is looking at some of the Scandinavian countries, I think one or two of those has taken drug policy out the hands of politicians because the Nixon model, like you described, I have to be tough on crime to get votes. If I say I've done drugs or I'm soft on drugs, even though I have done drugs, I'm going to lose votes. So I've got to be tough on crime and we've got to put people away for, for drug use, fighting this war on drugs. Take it out of the hands of the politicians, then have someone independent in charge of drug policy. You're going to get them saying, all right, we've got to do the harm reduction. We can't keep going with this. Now, I had a narco journalist on Johan grillo and we had a long chat at the end of it and he was like how do we move this forward do you think that would be a way to move this forward in this country has it got to come through the politicians
1: that's a really interesting question i was only discussing this in some detail last night actually uh, with some with some politicians and what you're referring to in scandinavia is norway who've decided to assemble a panel of experts to decide they've already decided that they intend to have some form of decriminalization there They've already decided that and they've got some panels to decide the best model for them to do that. And of course, in Portugal, the reason that they decriminalize is because politicians said, we've got to take the politics out of this. And the government said, we're going to assemble a... They didn't didn't say exactly what they wanted, but they said, we're going to get some experts and whatever they decide, no conditions, we'll accept it and do it. So yeah, perhaps that is the way that we have to do it and depoliticize it. But what's happening... But you have to get some kind of consensus that change is needed first. And and that is now happening. So the the Lib Dems and the Greens have had some progressive drug policies already for a while. They acknowledge the need for change. But now what we have is internal campaigns happening with the Labour Party and the Conservatives. So there's the drug uh, Labour Drug Policy Reform Group, which is run by Jeff Smith and Thangam Debonair, another good group to follow on Twitter. And there's the Conservative one run by Crispin Blunt, um, again, really worth following on, on, on Twitter and supporting. And they are basically campaigning within their own party to bring that party to the point where they n- need to adopt some kind of reform policy. And what that reform policy looks like will be debated further. But only a few days ago, um, there was a clear success from the Labour campaign because the front bench decided um, Diane Abbott, stated that the Labour Party would commission a royal, have a royal commission to decide it. So that's effectively what they're saying, that they'll do what you just suggested, that they'll have a panel of experts, which is encouraging. I think that's the wrong way to go here because it would take too long. And this is bloody urgent. We can't wait for a Royal Commission. The evidence is there already. And this is one of the frustrating things. You know, we've got the scientific evidence of how harm which drugs are harmful. We know how to regulate. We've been where people have been working on this for a long, long time. Transform Drug Policy Foundation published a, a book called Blueprint for Regulation uh, years ago. Experts know the answers, they know the evidence, and we need some leadership because in the UK, it's really urgent. You know, in Norway, they can sit back and wait. But in the UK, we've got 10,000 kids dealing drugs. And you can end that overnight by prescribing heroin. 80% of the county lines market is about heroin.
0: So you mentioned the arms race. Is the county lines strategy a reaction within the arms race? It's and, the... and can you explain to people who don't understand what that means? What is the county lines
1: Right. County lines is what's, hap- what's happened uh, in the last few years is that uh, gangs, now, gangs like the Birmingham gangs, L- London gangs, like the Burger Bar Boys, have moved into another town and take over the dealing there. Yeah. Now they're using children to do it. They're using children. They're grooming them, 11, 12 years old uh, or 13. They're meeting them through the teenage cannabis market. Uh, what a gang will typically do is, for example, they'll lay on a quarter ounce to uh or half an ounce to a teenager of cannabis and say well come back when you sold that you can lay it on you pay me when you sold it and they make a few quid then the best ones who sell the weed then they'll they'll recruit them into heroin and crack trading or they'll just blackmail people they'll they'll film them in sexualized positions and force them to 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 sell drugs and travel around the country and you know, i've spoken to this one kid who who uh was dealing dealing for a gang in Liverpool. He was dealing in Aberdeen. He has going all the way to Aberdeen to deal.
0: And the purpose of sending them across the county lines is what?
1: Well, it, for one, it's it's an expansion of the monopolies. So where in the cities the market is saturated and you, you, know, you want to find new customers and expand your part, part of the monopoly, then the lucrative markets are uh, other towns where you can be more dominant, you can be more aggressive and you can take them over, you can cut out the competition with better quality and cheaper drugs. It's just expanding monopolies. That's the way the business works. But the reason that they're now now using children to do this is my fault or people like me. Because when I caught the Burger Bar Boys, I caught adults. I caught adults who were hands-on with the drugs, hands-on with the money, and doing all the business themselves, driving from Birmingham to Northampton. So they got caught, and this arms race where organised crime constantly adapts to police methods means that the natural strategic response to the success that I had and other kinds of success that police had is using children. It's a natural strategic response because a child becomes a buffer zone. You know, like the homeless person was a buffer zone in Brighton, well, they've moved on from homeless people to children. There's a buffer zone. Children are easy to recruit, disposable. They're really difficult for police informants to get information on because they don't move in those circles. So they're separate from police informants and normal police tactics. They're disposable, easy to manipulate, cheap labour. They don't have to pay them as much. And there's an endless supply of them. So this is a cause of police tactics. That's what's brought us here. This is what success looks like. You know, I keep repeating this phrase that police are really good at catching drug dealers. They don't change the shape. They don't change the size of the market. They change the shape of it. And that changing shape means that we now have 10,000 children dealing drugs for gangsters in the UK. Now, I'd call that not complicated in history, not complicated to understand, not really. And the solutions are there. We can present the evidence for the solutions and they are urgent. Because these children are being traumatised. I mean, even if you have a successful operation, you know, sometimes now the police have started saying uh, occasionally, in a, f- a few weeks you get the police announcing that we've yeah we've shut down a county lines gang, and we've rescued twenty eight children from exploitation. Great, yeah, fantastic, you've rescued twenty eight children, but that means twenty eight new ones have been groomed. So it's just perpetuating the same violence towards our young. And. It, we have to stop doing this. We we have to be honest. Police have to be honest about it. Police have to step up now. And if there's any police listening to this, you know. You know this isn't working. And, you know, it's, I know police are meant to be apolitical, but there's plenty of your colleagues speaking out and joining us.
0: Oddly enough, I had a policeman come up to me in the restaurant and said, i watch your podcast. I'm a policeman. And... um what you're saying about the war on drugs is right. But you know, I can't say anything. So my next question is you're talking about this evolving, changing shape. Is the spice epidemic a function of that? Because I do talks in prisons in the UK. I get letters from prisoners in America and the whole prison systems in both countries are washed with spice right now, which is causing people to wig out. Staff assaults are up. Prisoners are attacking each other. People are falling downstairs, flopping like fish. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, spice uh, basically is a product of cannabis prohibition. It's a synthetic cannabinoid and they wouldn't really have existed on the streets if cannabis had been legally regulated several years ago. Having said that, now it's become an entirely different animal. It's a, it's a substantially different beast and it, it suits the prison population and vulnerable people because it's cheap, very cheap to produce and incredibly strong. And there'll probably be a few people out there who already understand the difference between the synthetic cannabinoids and cannabis. But um, in layman's terms, I'll just explain it if it's helpful. Cannabis is a um, a partial agonist of this endocannabinoid endocann- system, partial. So it doesn't completely bind with the, en- with the cannab- cannabinoid receptors. The more dangerous spice is a total agonist. So it completely binds to the receptors. What that means is you can't overdose on cannabis. No one's overdosed on cannabis. You can't kill yourself with it. Spice you can overdose and die because it's a much stronger, much more problematic uh, set of chemicals. And there's lots of different types of spice. And yeah, it, it it's a nightmare. It is. But you could regulate even spice because there are types of spice which are pastoral agonists. So if you had a legally regulated version of it, people wouldn't be dying from it. And obviously one of the most problematic populations who use Spice are homeless people. Now, I have to say, having spent a lot of time with homeless people, if I found myself on the streets, I would definitely be getting high to cope with it. I have no doubt about that. I do not know how I would cope with that otherwise. And Spice is very, a very rational choice drug, actually, to use on the streets because it takes time out of the day. It's cheap and it takes time out of the day. It makes complete sense. Why would you not do that if you're on the streets struggling with... I mean, what do you do? You have to struggle and go with the, the stress of begging and getting enough money just to function and eat and maybe get a bit of spice. Then what do you do with your time? So it's a rational reaction to a horrible situation.
0: Would you say that the police profession, they are hard drinkers?
1: oh yeah yeah there's a huge drinking culture in the police
0: and what is the drug that kills the most young people in this country
1: uh, alcohol yeah the, but there are eight and a half thousand um, acute alcohol deaths as in overdose deaths each year in the UK around eight and, eight a, half eight and a half thousand so that's not the long term harms cancer and heart disease and all those kind of that's that's acute deaths I know three young
0: people at least a week die just from binge drinking alone
1: yeah they're in the figures but it's terrible young people do that
0: so you've got people who participate in the drug that kills the most people arresting people who participate in a drug that is less harmful would, would that be correct yeah yeah absolutely
1: yeah that is the twisted dynamic yeah
0: and you got the prosecutors and the judges who probably drink as well and take prescription pills and they're putting young people in prison for weed possession it's moral relativism
1: uh, it's, it, it is absolutely you know i I went to. I got invited to speak to an event, a really posh event in um, in Cambridge by a, f- a friend of mine who's a former chief constable, and it was an international law enforcement sort of event. And it was at uh, was it Christ College? College, one of the posh colleges, anyway, in this medieval hall, and um, this posh dinner. And I thought, well, they, they realised they've got such a such a yokel in here, um, and there were three glasses. And um, one, so someone come and poured a white and a red. I'm thinking, oh, I don't really drink red. And, and this, this guy, this waiter pouring it, and he says, oh, you'll need it for the toasts. And there was a most bizarre, after the food, the most incredible ritualistic, basically, drinking session that I've ever seen. It was obviously posh, Cambridge, academics, top police from around the world. And there was a series of toasts and everyone's just knocking back a load of wine with every toast. Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, charge your glasses. That was the sort of ritual before. And I'm thinking, you know, you just, you just, I could, in my brain, I was just comparing this to every other little like heavy drug session ritual that might be going on around the world, you know, (laughs) for someone who really wants to cane it for the evening, you know, that you're going to do, I'm going to do another rock. I'm going to to cane, I'm going to do like a session on rocks. And I'm just thinking, you know, how did that work? Charge your glasses, charge you rocks, I don't know. And it was really intense, and people were getting ridiculously pissed very quickly in a very old-school, white, privileged ritual.
0: Do you think it's just human nature then that societies, populations of people will always divide and, and one group will always brutalise another group? And that's really the war on drugs is an extension of that, really. Whether it's religion, politics, you can go back through history... Societies have sent, tend to have structured themselves around that. So the group you just described would look at, you know, people taking drugs as a kind of enemy or bad people. Mm. That, that, that's
1: how they form. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, the war on drugs is, has its origins completely in, in racism. That's always been about racism. Uh, the war on drugs was gifted to us all by the United States. And it started with very very specific racism to very specific groups of people. So it started with the um, the Chinese immigrants who built the railways in America. Uh, hundred couple of hundred thousand workers. Well once the railways were finished and built in over in California, they'd got this huge uh, South Asian population. and uh, the white workers didn't want that competition. you know the white people didn't want it. so they demonized what they saw as the habits of the yellow people, opium smoking banned it and then persecuted them that's why they banned opium um and there's there's some awful tele uh, newspaper articles that show that the time that the, the comments at the time that you know what greater shame to a white man to see a, a white woman um near this yellow person you know that kind of horrible i've awful. seen some of
0: the posters from that era where it's they've got just, like these ming the merciless characters it's like it, puppet masters over these white women they're luring into the opium dens and getting them into the sex trade that it's was it it's
1: hideous. and then of course you go to you go to the 1919 and um cocaine was only banned because in the south it was a way to oppress black people that's that's why it was banned and i it, people i've said this to so many people and they say no surely not Drugs are banned because of the harms, but but they're not. There has never been any evidence about the harms in order to formulate drug laws. There still isn't, actually. Our misuse of drugs Act has no basis in evidence at all. So in the South, they didn't want to give up slavery, and they had the Jim Crow laws, the oppression of that minority, and banning cocaine was just another tool to oppress that minority.
0: And some of those blacks had been put on the cocaine by the, the bosses to increase their productivity, to give them more energy. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah more than likely and then
0: they, they they smoked weed um to come down at the end of the day so they were able to then incarcerate for weed possession and cocaine possession
1: yeah exactly well, in the mexicans of course mexicans coming into america during the great depression they were seen as the immigrant workers stealing white jobs so cannabis was a way of oppressing them and they even changed the name because they used to call it cannabis in the mid-20s in america they changed the name to marijuana to make it sound more foreign and and make it more efficient to oppress Mexicans.
0: We'll have to see if we can get Johan Harry on the podcast. If people are out there and they're friends with him or you want to tweet him, send him some messages. Because a lot of people have come on because of you guys out there and you've like suggested it to them. Can we just go, because we we skipped this to the day of your resignation? What was that like?
1: Uh oh, that was that was stressful. Um because that was a mess. I've been off sick for six months. Um and I was struggling, I didn't really understand what was wrong with me, um, I was just a gibbering mess, constantly anxious, and um, I wasn't dealt with very well by the constabulary, because they didn't really understand either, and I police still don't adequately understand um, complex PTSD, um, so I was just a, I was a bit of a gibbering mess, and I was terrified of the future, worried about money, finances, that kind of thing, but I did feel a sort a sense of relief as well though, to be free of um, being part of that machine, so perhaps that was the very beginning of my journey to feeling less unwell. I'm not completely there yet, but you
0: know. how did your colleagues view your transition, how you now perceive the work they were doing as counterproductive? <laughs>
1: When I first went public, it was quite clear I was public enemy number one to covert police. How,
0: how long between the time you resigned and you went public was there in that space?
1: Probably just less than two years. Less than two years.
0: Yeah, yeah, And you went public by issuing statements or was your book coming out around this or? I did
1: an interview for Vice. An interview for Vice, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of people freaked. Um, And I I heard that um, my only real, very close friend in the police was called into a senior officer's office and given a lawful order to have nothing to do with me at all and have no further contact with me. Um, She was ordered there and then to remove me from social media and her phone as well, there and then. Uh, I only heard from somebody else sort of secondhand that that's what had happened so they were out to get me but that was to punish me and um and then i published the book and it, it 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 was quite intense i got lots of insults and horror and accusations of of um being a traitor that kind of thing because i was letting out some you know it's a whistleblowing book when you say they were
0: out to get you what could they possibly have done to you after you were no longer working for them
1: well they could go after people i knew and make life difficult for them like they did Um, for that person but I mean
0: Did you ever fear that something bad could happen
1: to you? No not really, Um, I remember discussing it with Annie Machon actually um, because when I got involved with Leap she's one of the people I spoke to and she was a great source of um, knowledge and comfort really because she I don't know if you know her story but she was in MI5 and she was a whistleblower for some of the activities of what MI5 did And it was a big news story, and she went on the run. On the run, really. Oh, well, perhaps we can get her on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, and he's incredible. I mean, she's she's just she's amazing. Um, So, um, so she she explained. You know, you're best in plain sight. The louder you can be, uh, the clearer you can be. That, then that that's the best way that's the best tactic for you to do and and because that's what i wanted to do anyway not because not because i wanted to be public and actually i i'm i'm not comfortable public i'm not you know the last couple of days i've been wearing i thought i'd be a mess today because so i'm pleased i'm not because i have had to meet lots of people and i'm an introvert and sometimes that can really cause me some real problems uh so i don't really want to be public i don't i'm an introvert and i don't Necessarily enjoy meeting loads of people but but I have to do it, don't I? I i'm I am duty bound to do this, so once you're committed to that that fact, then you just have to get on with it, don't you and manage and manage things I think
0: And here you are in the public today, and there's a lot of people going to watch this, and what would you like to say to those people in conclusion?
1: I'd like to say, please consider the evidence um, of 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 what um Sean and I say. Uh, Please read the books to inform yourselves, but most importantly, spread the word. If you support us, if you you agree that this is a disaster that needs sorting out with some urgency, then then be part of the social movement. Be active wherever you can, even if it's just sharing tweets, being engaged. But, you know, write to your MP. I'm very much, at Leap UK, we're very much involved in an organisation called Transform Drug Policy Foundation, and a, a, their campaign arm, which is called Anyone's Child, and we do lots of speaking events. So, I've, you know, I will share a stage with a, a grieving mother or father who've lost, who's lost a child to to drugs, and they're saying the same as us that we need to regulate the drug markets to protect our children from the drugs and organised crime. And that's a powerful combination. So, but what they always say it Transform to an audience is write to your MP because if an MP receives three letters on one topic they will take it seriously. There's been studies to say that. I've spoken to lots of MPs and say, yeah, if they receive emails on this, they'll sit up and take notice. And if there's anybody out there who thinks, if you think you can host an event, either just a Leap UK event or a joint Leap and Anyone's Child event, then host one, you know, talk to us, arrange it. We, the more we get out there, we speak, speak to local populations, local women's institute groups, you know, it, it, wherever it is. You know, last week I was in Carmarthen in West Wales. Um, I'm going to be in Manchester and Salford we do constant events but the more we do the better but we need support from people out there willing to put them on because I'm crap at making what I do commercial I really am but but I struggle through with how people help us and I will never turn down a speaking event um, I'll never turn down an interview with a local newspaper um, and neither will my colleagues at Leap UK there's a lot of us active out there
0: So anyone out there watching this then, if you're in a position to help or support Neil, all the links are in the description box below this video. Highly recommend both of his books, Good Cop, Bad War and Drug Wars. You know, like I said at the beginning of this video, brought tears to my eyes when you you get the full force of the journey that Neil has, has gone through when you read the whole thing. Big shout out to all of the new subscribers and... Please put your comments down. Let us know what you thought about today's podcast. Huge thank you to all the people who've donated to keep the True Crime Podcast going. All the donation links are in the description box below this video as well. If you've not subscribed yet, it's free. There's a little box in the corner right there saying subscribe. Just click on that. And do, do you know the Arizona Prison Handshake?
1: No, I don't. Right. <laughs> that, that, and bump fists. All right. Okay. Yeah, cheers, um, Neil. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much.